0: Hello and welcome. I'm Marianne Fessenden from AMTS and this is the Nutritionist Webinar. Thank you for joining us today. We are joined by Daniel Scothorn of Scothorn Nutrition in Hortonville, Nova Scotia, Canada. We were fortunate to host Daniel last year for a canola Amazing webinar in March. Some of you may be familiar with Daniel from his informative and very well done LinkedIn posts. Raised in the dairy industry, Daniel's nutrition knowledge was gained through a bachelor's and master's of science at Dalhousie and the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. Daniel worked as a dairy feed advisor for Feedrite in Alberta and then as the ruminant nutritionist with co-op feeds across western Canada. Daniel and his wife Heather created Scathorn Nutrition, a company designed to offer independent nutrition advising to farms wanting to improve feed costs and milk yield. Through this, nutrition consulting has been provided to many farms and organizations globally, such as Dubai, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Vietnam, and Canada. Daniel has volunteered with farmers helping farmers by helping small dairy farms in Kenya improve milk production and cow health. When Daniel is not working with farms, cows, and fellow nutritionists, his favorite things to do are soccer coaching, personal fitness, cooking, surfing, and seeing new places. He has three amazing children, Logan, Alexa, and Zara, and a very supportive wife, Heather. Enjoy the video. Daniel was able to video during some amazingly beautiful weather. And remember, enter your questions or requests for elaboration in the chat or Q&A windows.
1: Hi, my name is Daniel Scothern, and I'm very fortunate to be here today. I'd like to thank AMTS for the invitation. Uh, we're really proud to showcase uh, some of the farms here on the east coast of Canada. Uh, I operate Scotland Nutrition along with Amber Craswell, Heather Angel and Jennifer Bernard. Uh, we provide coaching and management to dairy farmers, primarily on the East coast of Canada, and also remotely in Asia. The Topic of today's presentation is a virtual tour. It's a look at dairy herd performance. And we've been very fortunate to have Sunny Point Farms from East Knoll, Nova Scotia, allow us to go in, take video footage, and really get deep into the operation there of how things are done. I'm really excited to have this opportunity to showcase a farm that's really well managed, um, is award-winning. They've had have many individual cows who have won high production awards, as well as the farm itself has rated very well in Canada as far as uh, management index goes with Lactonet. So uh, without any further ado. I'm going to go over to a map so I can give everybody an overview as to where we're at. Um, Many of you have probably not been into Nova Scotia or even on the East Coast that are watching the the video today. So here we are, we have Canada here to the north and US just to the south side of us. And this blue dot is I think where I'm sitting here today in my office. Uh, So we're gonna zoom in. And you can see uh, it's not white. We don't have snow here year rounds, um, although it does feel like it's very close to arriving soon. So, Nova Scotia is the uh, easternmost uh, province uh, apart from, sorry, Newfoundland and, Pe- and Labrador. And we're surrounded by Prince Edward Island, which is a highly uh, intensive agriculture area and New Brunswick, which is more forestry, some agriculture, and just Maine down here to the uh, southwest of us. Um, yeah, just to give you an idea as to what the lay of the land is here, Nova Scotia. Uh, you can see this area here that my most is tracking over right now. This is the Annapolis Valley. I'm actually sitting here where that blue dot is. Um, but the farm we're going to today is up here, oh, is up here on the uh, Knoll shore. Okay. Now you can see the uh, look of that water is rather chocolate milk. Uh, that wasn't a uh, a uh, tank of Jersey milk that was uh, dropped into the ocean. That was uh, actually is really how the bay of Fundy looks. It's a very tidal area, so it picks up a lot of mud when the tide's going in and out. That is a body of salt water, and this farm here, Sunny Point, is positioned uh, just uh, right right in the middle of this basin here. So. One thing that we specialize in Nova Scotia uh, in the dairy industry is production forages so any farm that you ever visit on the east coast actually would uh, primarily do all of the forage production on their own and in most cases actually they're also growing quite a bit of uh, corn for uh, snappage or high moisture or even small grains uh, barley wheat and soybeans, especially where I live in the Annapolis Valley, there's a lot of soybean production. Uh, we live in a very temperate climate; it doesn't get too cold, and that's a relative term. We might see minus 20 Celsius from time to time, uh, and then in the summer, it's we do get a lot of humidity. So it's often, it's around uh, plus 25 to plus 32 would be probably the upper range. Once in a while, we see days where it's plus 35 to 36, for example, uh, this past summer. Uh, Sunny Point Farms is a beautiful layout. Uh, it's been constructed onto many times, but what we have primarily is this milk cow barn here, and that houses the dry cows on one end. In today's presentation, we're actually gonna get into that barn, look at some of the pens. I'm gonna start the presentation video though by featuring these feed bunks here. You can see there's uh, 11, feed bunks here. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. And right in between all those feed bunks is their feed kitchen area. This is an enclosed area where they do uh, uh, augering into the mixer. And this white barn over here we're also going to get into. Uh, it's a heifer, young heifer uh, uh, barn with uh, up to breeding age. And without further ado, we're going to start this first video. Thank you. It's actually an unusually beautiful day here on November 2nd at Sunny Point Farms in East Noble, Nova Scotia. It's a 330-cow Holstein herd owned by Philip and Lori Veru and their three kids. Now I've been working with this farm for probably 15, 16 years, I believe, doing the rations and advising and it's been a pleasure to work with them. So. First thing i want to say is thank you very much to the veru family for allowing us to host the video session at the farm today and as you see i'm going to do a 360 tour of the grounds the farmyard and give you a rough idea as to what's going on here Uh, in the in the uh, background you see the 330 stall free stall it's a six row it's got natural ventilation with fans inside. We're getting into that farm, into that barn in a few minutes, and they're milked in the parlor three times a day, which is in the uh, screen right now. Uh, it's a circle around. You're gonna see where the heifers are housed. And I'm standing on top of bunk number six uh, of 11 bunks on this operation. And like many farms in Nova Scotia, much of the forage is produced here and a year like this which actually is a fantastic year for growing there's actually a lot of high moisture corn and dry corn being produced here too just from an abundance of crop uh, which is not the case in all of Canada unfortunately in the West uh, there's a lot of drought this year and it was uh there's a large shortage of grains in some areas uh, but the bunks here are numbered from one to eleven and uh, one of the things I want to start off by featuring here is just this excellent forage management that they have here okay you're going to see there's many different coverings used here and there's many ways that they're uh, protecting the uh the harvest from the uh the critters which you can hear in the background there and there's uh being in Nova Scotia we sure we we have plenty of raccoons too so there's a lot of things that uh, Sunny Point has to do to protect the uh, the coverings, and I think it's a really good place to start because it's very symbolic as to what uh, dairy nutrition and successful dairy operations uh, have to do to ensure good production cow health, which is produce a really good quality forage. And really, at the end of the day, the successful farms are the ones that are producing good forage or procuring good forage, and. Uh, allowing high intake of forage. Uh, the most successful farms we see are high forage intakes, typically. Uh, and that's the case in Canada, unless you're in a different part of the world where uh, it's, the provision of forage is not as common at the high level. But this is uh, what the base of the uh, discussion will be here today in the presentation. Uh, intake, uh, feed efficiency, and forage quality. Uh, you can see what we have here is a blend of first cut and fourth cut. In Nova Scotia, it's getting more common to do four cuts on a regular year, even five cuts on a year like this, which uh, the grass starts typically growing in May and it's November here now, and there's still some people harvesting a, a, their final cut of grass, alfalfa, for most for the most part. The uh, silage harvest is completed in October here, and that would be corn silage and grass silage. Uh, but this year is an exception. Um, one thing that really sets this farm apart is just their uh, management level on forages and production. Uh, so you can see my hand here now, what we have is like a, it's a blend of triticale and really nice color here. You can see the iPhone's not lying, it's an excellent bronze uh color it's to get a little bit of uh, alfalfa as we get up higher here and that's because uh it's a fourth cutting that's actually put on top and this is something that i've personally promoted and a lot of farms have uh thankfully acted on is doing a on these farms that that can enable uh or that have the uh the manpower, I should say, in the bunk space to put a, uh, a first cutting on the bottom and then a second, third or fourth cut on top. And that way uh, we can provide both uh, the high energy, high digestible first cut grass-based forage uh, pretty much year-round and that higher protein, uh, higher typically higher legume, uh, because in Nova Scotia does dry out uh, midsummer, and you get a lot of more, more uh, prevalence of clover and alfalfa. And that typically goes on top. So that way we can provide the best of both worlds, uh, high energy on the bottom and higher protein on the top. And most of these farms, uh, Sunny Point included, use some sort of a defacer. And uh, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, you can see the excellent covering. Uh, they use a, uh, you yeah, know, they use a lot of tires. I uh, use sandbags on the sides, and they're following uh, a lot of good principles of good, good silage management. They're using a, a double layer of plastic. They're using this oxygen barrier on the very bottom, and over top of that, they're using either a six or an eight mil plastic to protect that oxygen barrier. And you can see, uh, I love this. Look at this the gravel that goes around the circumference of this face to prevent any uh the plastic from flopping and keeps everything tar- tarped down really well now we're standing in a, a brand new grass field this is orchard grass in this case and we just found that orchard grass fits in this rotation well uh, typically it'll be a, uh, a rotation of orchard grass blended with alfalfa and uh, a couple of years of corn silage and then there might be wheat in between that so uh, Philip focuses on uh, time of cut with his orchard grass. He's uh, pretty adamant to have a uh, ADF in that 30 to 31% range, which will give an ADF in the, uh, the high 40s or low 50s typically. Uh, some years alfalfa grows well in this, uh, this, on this farm, in this climate, and other years it doesn't. This is a year when alfalfa just didn't catch well. Uh, we seem to have rain every week uh, during this particular summer and, uh, the grass really flourished. So, standing here actually in front of bunk one, two, three, and four, and these are some of the original smaller bunks that this farm had, uh, but they still work really well these days as the farm picks up, uh, on cow numbers and, and these has higher foraging requirements. Uh, these bunks come in very handy for a, uh, like a third or fourth cut or maybe even a sec cut which may be on, a, on some years uh quite a bit smaller than the first cut or vice versa uh that they come in really handy for just putting one cutting in uh the other thing they come in handy for is doing a dry cow feed uh, which we purposely do at a high adf we're aiming for a 38 to 42 adf on dry cow silage and the benefit of that is that we get the right amount of energy uh, in that forage and the, we don't want to feed too much uh, uh, TDN or NEL to those uh, uh, far off dry cows and it comes in really handy for bred heifers too as well and uh, with the genetics that we're using here uh, those bred heifers just want to eat and eat and eat so we can't really feed a high energy forage to those heifers or else they typically put on too much body condition. Um, at the, at the end of the video, we're looking at the forage analysis on this stuff, but it turned out to be just perfect for uh, dry cows and heifers. Forage analysis at Sunny Point Farms is something that we typically do on a monthly basis. And we do that by coring ahead or, uh, once in a while we do it by face sample for sure that there is no further field changes in the, uh, proceeding 20 to 30 feet of silage, but primarily rely, we rely on face sam- uh, sorry, core samples. Uh, this the next few slides, I'm going to show you are the forage analysis from Cumberland Valley. This is a lab we typically use for this farm. Uh, we usually get in because this nutrition is primarily in this audience. I wanted to just explain things at uh, a little more detail uh, we primarily use the NIR-1 analysis. And if we are trying to troubleshoot uh, a fermentation issue, then we're going to get that extra fermentation profile done. Uh, but other than that, we rely on the basic NIR-1 plus analysis. And that gives us the uh, different time points for MDF digestibility, uh, the 12 through to the 240. And we find that very valuable for use on the, the AMTS software. Uh, the first silage uh, actually that we are look at will be back up here to the uh, corn silage. And this is uh, fed to all lactating and dry cow pens. And this is a 50% BMR, 50% conventional uh, analysis. And the dry matter, they really got it uh, ideal. This is mine be d- done in uh, last year's crop, uh, 2020. Uh, so the dry matter was ideal, 34.5. Uh, crude protein, fairly high. We don't typically see those high 9.5s, but but uh, hey, we're taking it, right? <laughs> uh, ADF, NDF, fairly conventional, 25 ADF. Uh, uh, ANDF at 41.6. That's the ash-corrected NDF. And just going down here, I'm just going to point out one of the first numbers I look at in NDF digestibility um, is the NDF digestibility at 30 hours, which is – Now in this area of the world we typically see a conventional corn silage around 55% NDF digestibility 30 hours, and we see BMRs often in that 70 to 75% NDF digestibility 30 hours uh, with this particular laboratory. So that gives some pretty low UNDF numbers Like I said, this is a 50-50 blend of BMR and conventional. So this is right where I would expect it, 64.7. A lot of silage acids in this stuff. Uh, Starch is 31.7, which I would consider to be pretty typical of a conventional BMR blend. Uh, Normally, we would see probably closer to 25% on BMR, and closer to 35% on a conventional. So this is right in the middle, which would be Fairly expected. Uh, Going down to the uh, grass, this is a grass that we feed intentionally to dry cows and heifers. And what I mean by intentionally is that we wait until the second cutting to take the first cutting off for the dry cows and heifers. All right. So rather than taking first cutting in May for dry cows and heifers, we take it in late June, sometimes even early July. And The reason for that is to try to get a higher NDF. In this case, we have an NDF of 66 and a lower energy. Uh, we purposely want to have that high fibre, uh, which we consider ideal for our uh, controlled energy dry cow diets and also ideal for the bred heifers who tend to easily get over condition with uh, high quality, well-fermented forages. The protein on this is very low. It's 12.6%. Like I said, it's mature grass. And the NDF digestibility is still relatively high, though, because it is a first cutting. It's 63%. So, straw, as you may know, is around 30 to 40% 30 hour. So, this doesn't provide that very high uh, fiber, low digestibility that straw provides, but it's a much more affordable way to feed cows from this part of the world uh, for in a controlled energy uh, diet situation. So, And the the final analysis I'll show you is the grass alfalfa blend. Uh, In this case here, it's a blend of first cut and fourth cut, which you saw in the video uh, was the first cut on the bottom and then the fourth cut over top of the uh, first cut. So It's a blend. We have a pretty ideal dry matter here at 40%, crude protein of 19, and that reflects the fact that it's fairly grassy this year. The alfalfa had a hard time striving because it was such a good year for grass growth. And Then the ADF on this is 33.8. The NDF is 48.6, so a little bit high. We, we're usually aiming for a 30 to 32 ADF on dry matter basis, and NDF of, uh, of Depend on the grass content. Uh, but if it's 50 50, we usually try to get an NDF down around 44 to 45%. In this case, here is uh, this particular bunk probably came off a few days late, a little bit mature. Uh, NDF digestibility, uh, and, and that was not by choice of the producer, but more uh, due to weather conditions. The NDF digestibility is still ideal though 65.7. So what we have is very typical Nova Scotia, a very high digestible forage, and we're going to continue the video tour. Uh, what you see here in this next bunk over is uh, bunk three. This is a Snaplage and this is common in a lot of areas of Canada and the States, but not so common in other parts of the world. Uh, typically is harvest it uh, with a self-propelled forage harvester with a uh, essentially a combine head on it. That's what we call a picker. So it picks the cobs off and processes it with a uh, uh, ideally a very tight roller uh, and a set of uh, reprocessing or recutter screens, uh, depending on the brand, there's many names for it. Um, But we want to see that really nice fine particle corn so that the cow can Digested properly, and you see here. I just, I just pulled a sample. This is actual farm called Day here, so I had to come out and do some samples. And this is snaplage. Um, so you can see there's a bit of crack corn in there, but most of the corn is fairly fine ground. You can see the leaf there. That's because snaplage is essentially the entire cob and the shank. And on occasion, it'll pull in uh, a little bit of leaf off that corn plant as well. Just depending on the uh, the moisture of that plant. Um, a year like this, when we, where we did not get an early frost, uh, the plant typically stays greener in the field. So it becomes very difficult to pick that corn off without bringing in a lot of fiber. Uh, but the corn, the fiber that's in that cob, is relatively high digestibility if it's cut and processed nice and fine. And also if it's uh, cut at the right moisture, uh, we want to ideally harvest the snaplage at a black layer. Um, and that will ensure that we can get there's enough moisture in that kernel for it to process uh, and ferment in the bunk. If it gets drier, we end up getting too many of these dry cracks. Um, the biggest challenge I see with snaplage and high moisture corn in general, and this is just a general statement, not anything to do with this particular farm, Is that we don't have enough processing just far too much going through the manure I still feel it's one of the biggest industry issues that we have maybe not in uh, other parts of the world but here on the East Coast of Canada I find that it's one of the biggest opportunities to improve the the processing of high moisture grains that are fed to cows I'm sure that's the case in other areas but I just I'm not fully aware so these kernels here although they uh, had the right moisture. Some of them just don't process well enough because they might be on the very end of the cob. You can see here, this is the very tip of the cob. That's where the kernels are usually smaller, harder, uh, more shrunken up. There's usually a little bit of leaf damage into any of those cobs. So those little tiny kernels that come off are really hard to process properly. And that's uh, probably the, the one disadvantage of snaplage. The advantage of snaplage though, is that you can store it in a feed bunk. You don't uh, need to dry it down. You can ferment it. And, uh, on the east coast here it's that's that's good we don't get a lot of drying weather in the fall months so if we could do more fermented feeds uh, that's better and uh, you may notice uh, what we have here is a, a drill it's a core system that we use we have enough extensions on that core to get all the way down to the bottom um, like i said earlier in the video we try to rely on core samples so that we stay ahead on the rations rather than always uh, trying to catch up on ration formulation and this allows us to have results back on the uh, feeds well before we need to actually feed this stuff. Um, a lot of a lot of clients always ask, how long should we let this high moisture corn or snaplage sit before uh, we go and feed it? And uh, I think that most nutritionists would agree that we probably longer is better. I usually say two months, and. Um, sometimes uh, clients uh, are in that situation where this is their cheapest feed and uh, so they're usually compromised with that two months that i request and they usually go with uh, two days uh okay so we're just getting back here i just bagged up that sample of high motion corn taped up the hole and what we have here is a about a 10 foot deep core and uh, we'll have the results back in three days and we know what we have. I'll test uh, just the typical things that we would on on uh, typically. I guess I would use a corn silage analysis type analysis, yeah, so, and that's so that we can get a, a fiber digestibility, a uh, seven-hour starch digestibility, plus all the regular stuff like crude protein, ADF, NDF, and uh, percent starch and ash and the minerals. Um, This typically make up 20, 30% of the cow's diet, depending on how much corn silage we're feeding. The more corn silage we feed, obviously the less snappage we have to feed. You may have noticed this really cool uh, tile system that they use over this bunk. And like I said earlier, this is just one more little uh, uh, tweak that they found on this farm to to protect this investment, this investment of grown forage and grains. And these are just rubber mats essentially it's made uh, by, a, by a company over in quebec just can't remember the name at the moment uh, but they're they're light enough so that uh, one person can't them in tile uh, but they're heavy enough so that they don't blow away on during a tropical storm or a hurricane and it also keeps the uh the raccoons and the birds off so, we get a lot of ice and snow in here so they, they don't tear or rip when the, when the uh trying to take them off. The side of them. Just picking up on Snapplage, there are a few more notes. It's become quite common on the East Coast and there's a few reasons for that because it's so easy to harvest. Uh, all it takes is a self-propelled harvester with a corn combine head on it and a really good corn processor. Now. That is also the challenge. When the crop becomes too dry or the kernels are too hard, the set of rollers are just sometimes not enough to completely damage that kernel. And what you see is more starch in the manure, like for example, on the right side here, this isn't a photograph from Sunny Point Farms, this is another farm I was at recently who just started to put snappage into the diet after fermentation for around one month. Ideally, we find snappage is better if it ferments for two to three months. We say that probably the best time to feed snaplage is after the new year. And you can see how it ranges in starch percentage compared to shelled corn. It's probably 10 to 15 points lower on average. And that's because the uh, crop is a lot of stalk and uh, leaf that's, sorry, mostly leaf that's coming in. And that's what brings this NDF up to that 18 to 25% range. Now, this NDF is digestible if the crop is actually harvested at the right moisture. Now, the values range depending on if you're buying or growing or what your crop yields like, uh, but this year we saw cost of production values as low as $100 a tonne, uh, but a year like two years ago where the crop was not good, the cost of production was closer to 200 And Currently shell corn delivered in this area of Nova Scotia is around that 300 to 350 range depending on the contract. Now we're standing in the milk fed calf barn. This is where calves live from one day of birth up to 60 days of weaning. And you can see this is vigor in these calves. Look at the condition on these really nice clean uh, well bedded see a little bit of environment environmental it's a tough word environmental enrichment going on here good fly control and you can see it's a positive flow uh, sorry positive pressure ventilation system uh, with curtain sidewalls to force a bit of that uh, air out. and they've tried many different things over the years in this barn. and they found this ventilation system seems to be working the best just look at the vigor and the condition of these calves beautiful what we have in the feed bunk here is a farm blended uh, what we call dry calf tmr and it's a blend of straw uh, and various grains and uh, we're bringing up a uh, copy of that ration a little bit later in the program and they also feed a pelleted calf starter really good intakes Um, interestingly On these uh, dry calf TMRs what I often see is a preference for the straw I'm not sure if it's really a preference or if it's just a uh, the fact that when the calves are eating this it's hard to avoid the straw so we typically see over time uh, a little more grains left in this uh, TMR than straw when we look at the fresh version of this freshly mixed version of this TMR it does have the appearance of a lot more straw so you can see a little Uh, specks of white in there, that's a fatty acid that we put in there. Now we're just going to move out of this barn into the next stage of growth which is uh, weaned calves here and into the uh, next barn through this door This is where calves three months onwards up to breeding, point of breeding, live. Now, we try to ease the transition onto this dry calf TMR, the straw based TMR. We still feed them a little bit of pellet here, but primarily their diet at this point is that dry calf TMR, the blend of straw, dry grains. There's no high moisture grains in there or wet silages, it's just uh, completely dry. Quite a bit of molasses in there, too. See, at this point, it's predominantly calf, straw-based TMR. And nice, quiet barn today, well-fed. Always a sign of a well-fed barn is quiet calves. No coughing whatsoever. I'm sure somebody's gonna prove me wrong in a moment here, but, and this is interesting, what we do here, to ease them on to that silage-based diet uh, at this age, uh, which are June-born calves. We give them half dry TMR and half silage-based TMR. It's a little bit windy here, so I'm not going to uh, be in here too long. It's probably difficult to hear me. Uh, but you can see the uh, different age groups here. Up near the end this is where the uh, breeding takes place. And we also have a third TMR that's fed in this breeding age, you, which is pretty much 100% forage uh, with the mineral mix in there to provide the extra goodies and you can see it's really high forage at this point Uh, again we just see these calves these calves eating so much forage now and this is something I've seen change over the past 10 years especially and I think a lot of that is to do with the, uh, the genetics um, I think the fact that we're selecting for high milk production means that these animals, no matter the age, are just capable of such high, mat- high dry matter intakes. And we used to have to feed a lot more starch and protein to these calves uh, 10 to 20 years ago to get the growth. But now we can do it predominantly on a good, uh, relatively, uh, I was going to say, mid-maturity grass silage and just small amounts of corn silage from time to time but they just seem to be doing it this growth on such a simple diet and that's what i've noticed with these improved genetics hey good to see you back again uh there's a reason why i'm not on video any longer and that's because it's my boy's birthday this week and he decided that a great birthday idea would be to take his dad out paintballing with him and his buddies and gang up on me so there's too many uh different colors of paint my hair right now to uh, to bother going on video. Um, This is a dry calf TMR. It's fed to all the calves from birth up until four months of age. And it's based on wheat straw, molasses, fat, corn, soy pass, canola meal, and a premix that has some of the additives in it. The dry matter intake once they reach that three months of age is around four kgs. This is post weaning has enough Protein there for 1.73 kgs of gain and the protein uh, is relatively high at 21.5% dry matter basis and the starch as well as high at 27, there's a little bit of fat in there. The sugar is quite high at 8.3 and that definitely adds a lot to the palatability, it does help mitigate the dust a little bit, having that much molasses in there. We just find this is a really good way to feed calves, the forage component of that diet which is 100% from straw, is around 16%. And that's something that we can tweak. Uh, If we feel that the intake is too high, we can increase that. If we feel the intake is too low, uh, then we can also decrease that to increase the consumption of concentrates. Thank you. in this uh, farm we, we do have rumination stakes on most of the herd, so we can see uh, remotely what rumination is like. But it's always good to watch that too. You can see almost every cow here is chewing. Uh, this is a high intake herd. we will show you some graphs of that in a moment. You can see a lot of good activity here. And there's that classic foam, and that's a good sign of rumination. Lots of activity there. Look at that one here. Number 2097. She doesn't like the camera on her, does she? Look at that. Look at that rumination. So these cows are just coming out of the parlor probably in the, over the past hour. Uh, so some of these cattle had a meal already and they're lying down, taking a break. Uh, one thing that uh, the, uh, the owner noticed the last few days is some variation in the manure. And uh, we'll get over there in a moment. Uh, this, this uh, sand bedded farm you know, three times a day. Fed one time today. Uh, all the diets provided just in between that AM and noon hour milking. Excellent, excellent illumination here. Now, this is a three row. Uh, we have sidewall vents, uh, chimneys, and also uh, box fans now heat stress on the bay of Fundy is not typically an issue this year would probably be the exception there was quite a few warm humid days where the thi got into the uh, high 70s 80s and i'd say a typical daytime high out here would be in the high 20s but this year we did have a few days in the low and mid 30s celsius that is and being on the bay and on the east coast we do we do get a lot of humidity so it's a very good wise investment to have some heat abatement systems which they do so walk it down here now this is a a split of uh, mature cows and lactation one in this pen and it's a long pen has the appropriate amount of crossovers i believe but what we typically see on this pen, and I'd love to uh, get feedback from uh, you folks, is the lactation one are normally on one end of this pen. And it's strictly by choice. Uh, There's no reason for them to be up here, but they typically are eating and lying down on this end. And if you want to look at lact, normally when I come to this farm, if I want to see the heifers, I just walk in the end of this pen here, if I want to specifically look at their condition and their, uh, their growth and uh, just how they how they're doing this is a new uh grouping strategy this term's been using over the past year where they're uh, penning them by repro stage rather than uh, lactation number used to be a lactation one and a mature cow pen now it's all split up 33 percent of this herd is lactation one and probably really hard to tell on video but most of the girls on this end are lactation one most of the calves on the other end are lactation two team hours was fed about two hours ago and probably agree with me it's just a perfect timing for a feed Uh, push-up still lots of uh, feed within reach uh, but at this point i think uh, what those calves will really benefit from is that uh, that push-up and that'll tweak those some of these girls to come over and start eating again and that's really the secret of some of these high intake high production herds just the ability to be presenting fresh feed in the form of a push-up or a new feeding on a very frequent basis you can see this pen here is fed just before so they are uh, also ready for a, a push-up and I think that skid steer I can hear in the background is gonna be coming through here in a moment um, dry matter intake on this herd uh, is, is currently uh, quite good. Um, at times, it's been as high as uh, 34 kilograms, in the uh, among the mature cows when we used to pen them separately. And uh, now, when, now that we have the lactating one and mature cows penned together, uh, we typically see uh, at, uh, at a high of about like, 33 kgs. And that's for uh, a pen that goes up to uh, essentially the 125-day uh, range. Uh, this pen over here, which is essentially all bred, confirmed pregnant cows, uh, their team TMR diameter and taking typically with 4 to 5 kgs lower. And spinning around here, this is the, uh, the fresh cow pen. And this includes all lactation-1 and mature cows as well. So... This diet is unique, uh, we've gone with a, a high protein, since it's 19% protein, high amounts of uh, uh, metabolizable protein, uh, high amounts of forage. We're not using any fiber byproducts in this diet, and uh, we're following the uh, philosophy of uh, feeding high amounts of protein. They're only in here for two weeks, so it's not really a, uh, a long time. Uh, typically when I walk into a fresh pen uh, there's two things three things I'm looking for. I look at their muzzles I like to see what they if there's anything coming out of them if there's any of that long stringy uh, Nasal discharge coming out then I know that we're uh, we're putting them on Aggressively changing them too fast onto a high grain a, a grain diet that is too high um, I'll look for dryness on the muzzles uh, if they're dry If there's a lot of feed sticking to those muzzles, then it's a good indication that they're just not drinking enough water for whatever reason, either they're just sick and they're not making their way to the water bowl or the provision of water is just not high enough. Um, I'll get into this pen here so we can look at the uh, back ends of these cattle. Um, One of the most important things I think to look at to own a fresh cow pen is the eyes. I know video doesn't do this justice, but what I see in this heifer's eyes is that they're a little tiny bit sunken. Alright? One of the best indicators of either uh body fat loss or slight dehydration is uh are those eyes. If they're uh, really sunken in, then it's typically uh a lot of body fat loss. Um, but what we want to see is a nice uh healthy looking eye that's that's not uh, showing any signs of uh, weight loss of it. I'm just going to try to find uh, a good view here of some fresh cows. Typically, it's, this is a herd that's typically in the mid-40s for production with 4.2 to 4.4 percent butterfat, so we're not going to find a lot of fresh cow problems on this barn. Um, these cows can uh, show me their uh, pretty eyes, mm-hmm. we can take a closer look. And you can see these cows all look excellent. You're not going to find cows that have extremely sunken eyes. This one here is a little bit sunken, all right. Uh, but again, that's one thing I like to uh, walk walk through these pens looking at is the, uh, the position of those eyes. Uh, the other thing, of course, is manure. Uh, of course, the alley scraper just went through, so, so it's not going to be easy to find one. Um, I score manure on a scale of one to five. One B in diarrhea, five B in uh, like a horse manure, and uh, I would call this a two. Unfortunately, we do typically see twos in fresh cow pens, and that's either just to do with uh, some some stress our cow's going through, or um, or just a the change in diet. And this one here is a two, a little bit too loose in my mind, all right. But again, it's a fresh cow diet, so fresh cow pens, so I expect to see this. That's quite common. This one here is a little better, probably a three. Actually, it might be a little bit too stiff. So one here is probably a little bit too stiff as well. That's probably what they call a three and a half or a four. I don't like to get too picky on the North scoring. Uh, I do think sh- we should be uh, sounding half scores to the board. <laughs> uh, and this one here is pretty ideal. That's a three. As we get on for- here further, you can see there's, uh, there's a little really nice loose one there. It's a one or a two. I found not know caps. And this heifer here, who's just got off, I, I get these cows all stirred up so they're, yeah. before I got here, they were all lined down. That's a really good looking look, that's a three-square. So, nice, well-conditioned heifer. Another really nice, tall, beautiful heifer here. Uh, pretty much has a show cow on her, right? For that front attachment and the teeth placement. Wow, it's an incredible heifer. This is a really high intake herd typically. Um, The breeding pen, which is a high lactation cows, they normally average between 30 and 34 kgs of DMI. Um, This diet is balanced today for 32 kilograms and I'll just give you a little indication as to what these mean. This is a blend of first cut and fourth cut haylage. That's a bunker that I showed you at the beginning of the videos. This corn silage, or CS, is a blend of the BMR in conventional corn, 50-50. That's from 2020. Corn grain, which is dry, fine ground. Wheat, which is dry and fine ground. Uh, This Enervive, which is uh, actually a Scotland Nutrition product. It's a palmitic acid. Uh, Soy plus, canola meal, urea, dairy premix, which has some additives as well. Um, Now, the cost is... uh, it's obviously high this year based on the uh, the concentrate costs we're using. I think we're at an all-time high for for costs on this farm, just based on the, the price of corn and canola and soy this year. And uh, But it's formulated for a, a ME and MP of around 49 to 48.8 kgs. And uh, they're, they're definitely achieving that in this pen. Um, we can push that ME and MP higher. We'd have to do that with... Uh, It's obviously a higher level of soy plus, probably a little less canola meal, and then higher starch or fatty acids. Uh, But we're trying to take into account costs here this year just because primarily so things are just so expensive. And forage costs are not too bad this year. So we're trying to to still maximize forage, yet um, sustain a high level of intake and milk production. That rumen ammonia is one number I watch a lot. Personally, and this is on advice from uh, the folks at AMTS to watch that room of money. And if it gets below 125 is the point where you may want to start adding urea. So I do that normally. If it is below 120, 125, then we're add urea. Uh, if it's a high intake curve, we could probably get away without the urea. But in this case, I do add 50 grams. Can probably get away without having it there. It's, uh, it was higher on a different forage. So I have just been re- reducing that over time. Um, the lysine methionine are coming from the soy plus, the canola meal, and uh, we are not currently supplementing any supplemental methionine sources. Now, it is a milk market here in the, the part of Canada that we live in where the milk protein is actually worth a lot. So it does pay to feed methionine, I, I believe, but we are also trying to keep feed costs reasonable this year because of the uh, high cost of commodities. This is a pre-fresh heifer pen, all right? Now, here's an interesting experiment we've been trying on this farm and uh, a couple of other dairies in Nova Scotia, and that is grouping these pre-fresh heifers by themselves for the three to four weeks pre-calving during that uh, pre-fresh phase and feeding them the actual fresh cow diet, all right? And the fresh cow diet, as you know, is higher protein, I already said, it's 19% protein. Uh, it's got a lot of MP, and it's got moderate amounts of ME. Uh, it's a fairly high forage diet. The reason why we're doing this, you may may ask, is because we're trying to see if one less diet change actually helps these heifers. All right, so these heifers will eat, consume this diet for three to four weeks pre calving and then for about two weeks post calving. Now, during that calving phase, she goes through a pen change. She's put into the fresh cow pen. So she's being reintroduced to older herd mates. That's enough stress on its own, if you ask me. I think that's probably as much stress as she needs at that stage. So to throw another diet change in there, I think is just one more stress that we really may not see any benefit from. What I think is that if we at least keep the diet the same for these heifers, that it's just one less stressor and I think we get a little bit better intake. Uh, first thing we were wondering when we started this trial a year ago was, are we gonna see more outer swelling? In general, we didn't. Uh, of course, there is the odd heifer that has utter swelling, uh, but in general, we didn't see a big difference in, in that. So, you see these are really nice well well grown framey heifers There's capacity on this one here um, good tall well bedded um, take a look at the manure in this pen ideally in a steam up diet whether it's a heifer or a mature cow i think we want to see that manure uh, a little closer to what a, a lactating cow manure would look like which would be a score of three would be ideal and i think what we're seeing there is pretty much a three in this pen. That's because they are each fresh cow diet. So we've tried many different dry cow programs here. We even tried the uh, Goldilocks diet where they've had a high fiber, straw-based diet for the entire dry cow period. And um, yeah, this is with uh up to calcemia. So we decided to go um, to a uh, well-managed anionic diet on this farm. Uh, these next bunches of uh, pens are mature dry cows. And again, these are steam up. So these are three to four weeks pre-calving. We do what's called an all-in, all-out, pin change uh, for these dry cows. So uh, everybody is is moved as a a group. Uh, It's called mob group movement, I guess is another term we use in our industry. And these cows are all moved together uh, four weeks prior to calving, into the pen together on the same day. So they live with each other for that four week period. And at any given time, there's only one pen generally calving. So it's a lot easier to manage as well. Again, it's a 330 cow, milk cow dairy, so it's not a lot of cows calving every, every day. Uh, in general, almost one cow a day calving. A lot of things being done right with this diet. They're really processing the straw well. Um, it's predominantly straw, corn silage as a forage. Uh, we've tried a little bit of grass alfalfa silage in here just to try to uh introduce it to them pre-calving but uh we just found it made tri- formulating uh for the ideal urinary ph to be to be an extra challenge so we just removed that so now it's primarily straw corn silage and a uh, a good dose of canola meal for protein uh, some uh, amino plus or soy plus depending on the the month, what we're buying here, is a metabolism protein source, and um, or soy class, I should say, and uh, anions in the form of animate. Nice quiet barn, isn't it? I love it. Let's take a peek at the manure in this pen here. Uh, because it's a straw based diet we're seeing a lot more uh, fours and fives essentially okay probably a little tight i don't know if i want to see a five manure score and a close-up steam up diet okay it tells me that there is yes a lot of fiber intake but possibly not enough uh, carbohydrate or nfc intake we are bedded on a nice deep bed of pack super comfortable uh, we got the fans there uh, for when we need them, and uh, everybody's tuner or cut. Things are looking pretty good in here today. Here are a few of the most important Dairy Comp 05 graphs, and this will give you a rough idea as to, to the uh, production level on this herd. And I want to just highlight some of the graphs that I look at on a regular basis. I'd like to thank Dr. Sterling Dorrance for helping me prep these graphs uh, last minute here. I um, wanted to get really fresh data, so he just helped me uh, over the weekend to get these together. Um, generally, these mature cows are averaging around 14,000, and these heifers are averaging around 11,300. This is a 305 kilograms of milk, three hundred five five days of lactation. Now, the goal is to get those heifers up closer to that 12,000, we plan on doing that through uh, growth rates and uh, trying to tweak that heifer uh, pre-fresh pen, a few things like that. Um, I'd love to get feedback in the question period on, on heifer 305-day uh, milk and just some of the ideas that people have found work well. The next graph here, one of the numbers I look at a lot is week four milk or W4MK as it's shown here. this graph shows the relationship of that week four milk by the 305-day milk. Now, I always do this on any herd that I look at to see what, to just to double check that we have a good strong correlation between the week four milk and the 305-day milk. And why do we use week four milk? Um, It's because it's a really good quick indication of how those fresh cows are doing. And generally, if they're doing well at week four, they're gonna do well the rest of that lactation. This graph certainly shows that. So that said, we can then take that W4MK, or the week four milk, and make all kinds of graphs around that to see what's impacting uh, the week four milk. And a few of the slides in particular I wanna show you is, one thing we found over and over again, is that the number of days that dry cow spends in the close up pen is somewhat going to impact her milk production. And what I mean by that is this is the all the lactation two fresh cows on this graph here, lactation two. And this graph demonstrates that if they're not spending much time in that close up pen, say for example, if they calve early, um, or they're maybe misplaced, they're put into that pen too late, which wouldn't happen on a sunny point, but if they are in there a short amount of time, it's typically because they calve early, uh, then we're just not gonna get uh, good um, week form milk. Uh, I see this over and over again. If they're only spending 18 to 20 days in that close up pen, uh, the week form milks become very low. Now on the contrary, you'd think that the longer they spend in that pen, uh, maybe may compromise how well they do, but we generally don't see that. There is a trend uh, to do just as well as they spend more time in that pen, even though they're on a uh, well balanced anionic diet. The next graph is the uh, second plus lactation. There's quite a few more cows on this one. Now, their average week for milk is 56.4 kgs, and you can see there's a uh, still very similar relationship there that if they spend too little time in that pen uh, say 16 to 18 days and below they're not generally there's going to be more cases of cows not doing well and it seems like we're getting the most uh milk the 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 highest week for milks and this group of cattle that are in there between 22 uh, to 26 days all right not highly Highly sensitive, that graph, but there is, it is a good indication. On other herds uh, that may not be producing as much, Uh, we may see more of an extreme uh, example there. So uh, the other question is well, is that, is the, uh, you know, is the previous day's carried calf um, impacting that number of days in the dry? in the uh, dry period or number of days in the uh, close-up period. So say if that cow calves early, is that what is impacting the, uh, the days that she's in that close-up pen? And in this case, I think we can show from this herd that um, you know the average uh, uh, days in gestation is around 277, 278 on this herd. Um, and then, but there is still quite a few cows, uh, that are calving at uh, 272 and less. So those are probably the ones that are not spending much time in that close up pen. Those are the ones that tend to do worse. So in management, if there's anything we can do to, to try to identify that cows, those cows that calve early, just by looking at trends or graphs on your farm to see if there's any relationships, then, um, maximizing that days in a close-up pen will usually yield more positive results on week four milk and i see that over and over again on different farms so i encourage you to look at that same graph if you haven't already so um, this is in a graph that shows the week four milk uh, by the age at the most recent freshening for first lactation animals now we've been trying to um, see how these 20 21 22 month old uh, calvers do and Uh, what we're seeing is a really good uh, bunch of numbers here. We're seeing the uh, calves at, calves at cab at 21, 22, 23. months all roughly do about the same milk production. Okay. You can see the majority of them are calving around 21 months. Uh, We typically start to see issues when we get to that 25, 26 months, but clearly on this farm, there is none that are calving that that old because of a tight breeding program. So uh, also I'd like to, uh, before I show you the next video. I'd like to thank uh, the Sunny Point family, the Verus, for letting us host uh, this video tour today and showing some of this information that's, that I think is uh, you know certainly sensitive. There's a lot of management that goes into this information. So I really appreciate them allowing us to share this and uh, have discussion. So I look forward to questions after this final video that we show. Take care. Here's the secret to success in these high intake, high production primes. I know that you can do it without sand, but really, at the end of the day, it's, it's very difficult to beat a good sand bed free stall with proper dimensions. And one of the keys to keeping that sand bedded system working well is just uh, replenishment on a regular basis. Ideally, I'd love to see it every day, but uh, I think the, the, good, the, the well-managed operations are putting fresh sand in at least twice a week and of course using a really good grooming system here you can see they've got a a homemade grooming system they just go along and this is a leveler which uh, keeps those big chunks of sand from developing and this is what helps cows lay down properly when they get into that stall
0: we'll add the question and answer period from both the morning and the evening webinar shortly But first, I have to go through a few things about our next webinar and also thank our co-hosts and our sponsors. Next month, we'll have our final webinar of the year. I do appreciate recommendations for speakers, topics, and formats for next year's series. For December, we'll be hosting Dr. Sam Fesenden, co-owner of Silver Spirit Farm in Elgin, Minnesota. Sam spent his early life on a fifth-generation dairy farm in upstate New York. After completing his BS at Cornell, a master's at Minnesota State University with Dr. Marshall Stern, Sam returned to Cornell for his PhD with Dr. Mike Van Amberg working on the CNCPS model. On completion, Sam joined the team at AMTS where his primary role is model teaching and support as well as international work. Last year, Sam moved to a consultant role in our company as he transitioned to owning and running a 120-cow dairy in Elgin, Minnesota with his wife and her parents. He continues to offer model training and support, as well as advisement in program development. Living the dream, with a young daughter, another child due soon, a supportive wife and family, as well as a new dairy, Sam really has no free time for extracurriculars. Next month, Sam will provide insight on what he has learned in his experience as a startup robot facility. Register to join us at 9 a.m. or 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on December 9th by visiting the agmodelsystems.com webpage and looking under the Nutritionist 2021 webinar tab for the webinar signup button. I'm thankful for my co-hosts who share the task of fielding questions and who bring global insight to our webinars. In the morning, you will hear from Dr. Huday Kavustran, our distributor in Turkey. And then in the afternoon, we were joined by Dr. Marcos Neves-Pierre of the University of Lavras in Brazil and Dr. Sean Lee of Ansai Tech, our distributor in China. We also co-host these webinars with Paula Tirillo of Afina who hosts the webinars in Argentina as El Webinar del Nutritionista. She receives support from Rock River Lab in Argentina and is ably assisted by Paula Alanez in translating. We are especially thankful to generous sponsors who make it possible for us to get great speakers and manage the program. We thank our gold sponsors, Arm & Hammer Animal and Food Production, Hashtag hearted, the Canola Council of Canada, Learn more about feeding canola at canolamazing.com, Idina, experts in animal nutrition with expertise in plant bioactives, and Proteca, transforming the future of farm animal health. Our silver sponsors are Ajinomoto, Superior Nutrition Through Amino Acids, and Virtus, both of whom have been sponsors with us from the start. Also, we thank the Forage Analysis Laboratories of Dairyland Laboratories and Dairy One, both have affiliates around the world. Adeseo, Ruminant Nutrition Solutions to Ensure Animal Performance, and Micronutrients, Feeding the Future. Our bronze sponsors are AminoMax, Purdue Agribusiness, Origination, Inc., Phileo, Balkem, and The Milk Group. Each of these companies support education and research worldwide. We hope that you consider them in your formulation decisions. I will first add the question and answer period from the morning webinar, and then I will add on the question and answer period from the evening webinar. Thank you. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Can you re-ask that question, I?
2: Okay, so uh, the BMR, you know, you mentioned about BMR. I think it is a good product for uh, replacing the corn silage. I think they require the uh, less water compared to the corn. So, is it really good compared to the corn silage what can you say more you know
1: okay all right uh, can you hear me yes okay excellent uh, I don't know if you can see me I can't see my video so I'm not sure uh, so uh, first of all uh, thank you Marianne for inviting me to uh, to be a part of your your uh, webinar series I, I really appreciate it it's a good chance to talk to nutritionists and uh, it's it's a good i love sharing ideas so that's that makes me very happy to be able to do that um the uh the other thing i'd like to do is uh thank uh you marianne for cutting and pasting a lot of uh, work here that i did today uh it it saved me hours and hours actually what you did marianne so i really appreciate that um and uh the uh the other thing is my wife heather uh, she gave me a lot of uh, time last weekend uh, looking after the family to uh, To put this stuff together, and finally, um, I'd like to thank our uh, our war veterans today. Uh, it's Remembrance Day here in Canada, Veterans Day in the states. Uh, I have uh, family that served uh, in the in the war, and uh, some of them are still active in military. So I'm going to dedicate today's talk uh, to the uh, the war veterans uh, in my family. Okay,
3: um,
1: I guess the uh, the to your question, uh, it's the BMR is uh, short is an acronym for brown midrib corn silage and uh, that's a uh, genetically modified uh, trait uh, sorry I shouldn't say it's genetically modified it's a uh, it's a trait that was ad- identified and selected for uh, that was related to a lower lignin content uh, it's BMR I believe was first discovered in the 80s it's been uh, progressively bred and uh, Uh, refined over the years. They did introduce a a, uh, GMO trait to it. Uh, Most of it's uh, glyphosate resistant. So therefore we may not find it available in uh, every country. Uh, And I see Christine, you you, uh, made a good point. BMR is not genetically modified. However, they do put a trait trait in there uh, that uh, makes it glyphosate resistant, at least the the variety we have here uh, in Canada. Uh, so it's because it's a uh, low lignin, it does have a, a much higher fiber digestibility, uh, but because it's lower lignin, um, there is a perception out there that the sustainability is lower uh, in windstorms. So because of that, the... Uh, Thank you, Zara. Uh, because of that, the, um, there's a hesitation for everybody to plant it and feed it because there is a higher risk of uh, storm damage uh, but personally, as a nutritionist, I love it. It's what I call easy milk. All right. When you add VMR to diets, uh, typically we get, um, number one, higher energy density of the diet because it's a more digestible fiber. And number two, we just get a willingness for more intake because the, uh, the rate of passage either is, uh, is higher or just willingness to, to have more intake and a greater extent of digestibility. So we automatically typically get a milk production response. So very good. So um, I who,
0: who who die? Yeah. I, I have a question for you. I know that in some parts, as um, as Christine offered, that BMR is not genetically modified, but Daniel indicated that perhaps a variety yeah. that he's co- commonly using using is considered genetically modified because of the um, glycophosphate um, tolerance, um, in, I know here in the States and possibly in parts of the EU, um, GM plants aren't, or you, you really have to limit or can't use the amount of, um, BMR that maybe would be preferred because of, of restrictions. Um, do you experience that in Turkey as well? And Daniel, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Okay, uh, Marianne, are you, are you asking the extent of use? Just like what, like possibly like what are what's our sort of upper limit, or what are the things we have to watch out for? Can you clarify your question, please?
0: Um. Yeah. So probably there, it's multifaceted. Um. There's. Okay. Obviously, extent of limits because some, um, here in the states at least, some some milk processors are requiring that there be a very limited, and especially if your product is going for export. Um, that seems to be something that you have to be quite conscious of, um, and I I just wondered if Hudai was um, cognizant or had those same sort of rec- regulations. I'm asking a a both country question, I guess.
1: Okay, uh, I I can certainly uh, comment on uh, the uh, just the nutritional aspects. I guess I I, I um I'll I, I won't. Uh, I don't think I'll discuss the GMO or, uh, aspect or the um, the use of it in certain milk regions uh, just because of my lack of knowledge. but the um, uh, nutritionally uh, we find it used in in places where uh, typically there's one well, number one where it's sold it's not sold in every area. Uh, number two, um, we do use it as a full replacement of of conventional corn silage uh, in in many parts on the East Coast, but I do recognize that certain parts of, uh, of Canada that are more, uh, for instance, um, more alfalfa silage based, um, more, uh, uh, there could be various reasons, but there is a reluctance to go full BMR in, in some regions. And I believe that's just because uh, in, in technical terms, I think some people are trying to achieve a higher UN, UNDF in diets. And it's difficult to do that with uh, if you're feeding a high amount of corn silage uh, from BMR. Uh, however, here in the East Coast, our typical diets are 50 to 60% corn silage. So that gives lots of uh, uh, room for a highly digestible uh, forage like BMR in, in place in, in the diet. So what I do nutritionally when I feed BMR is I, I will normally reduce the uh, the NFC component of the diet, okay? And that's because this NDF becomes such a big chunk of digestible fiber that's displacing something that's typically lower digestibility. Uh, so just a, a more as a, a prevention of acidosis-related symptoms, we typically reduce the NFC by around a point. Uh, so if we're running at 40% before BMR, we might go down to uh, 39%. Uh, NFC. Uh, we don't reduce it a lot. We try to maximize the intake of NFC. That's how we get uh, their lowest cost form of uh, microbial protein production. So uh, I'll just leave it at that.
0: Um, Hudai, do you? I, I have a BMR related question while we're talking about that. And then Hudai, I want to give you more of an opportunity. Um, this question is, with BMR, does the milk production per acre go down because of the yield drag and lower starch content? In your experience.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good question. Uh, Yeah. So I think originally, uh, Bob, uh, it's good to see you on here, Dr. Charlie. Uh, I have a you know, I rely on a lot of what my, my clients tell me and what they see. They, they know so much more about growing than, than I personally do. I've been away from primary agriculture for quite a few years. Uh, so I, originally there, there was more of a yield drag for sure. Um, and what most of my uh, customers tell me now is that they don't really see that yield drag. Either they've become better at growing their crop uh, by using... Uh, the correct uh, fertility, the correct seeding date, they figured out which fields to grow BMR on. It's a very sensitive crop. Um, it's more susceptible uh, to disease. Uh, so they've also figured out the best the prime time to spray that crop. Uh, so I, I'm not personally seeing yield drag. What I am seeing is, a, uh, uh, as you indicated, a lower starch content. Typically we're seeing our conventional corn silage around 35% starch here. And then the, the BMR will typically come off maybe around 25 to 30 percent so it's usually around five percent lower starch uh and now is that is that the variety or is that the uh just certain conditions here on the uh on the atlantic coast where we don't get the uh the intensity of heat that that other bmr producing areas would get inland i'm not sure uh the other thing that i've noticed and this is just uh anecdotal um i don't i don't I, I don't know if there's, an, I'd love to hear your feedback, uh, Dr. Charlie, because you've, you've uh, been around silage a lot longer than me, but the what I do see is a lot of shrink in the bunks uh, where, where we use BMR. So if we pack the uh, BMR into a, a bunker that's 12 feet of height, uh, we always lose a foot to two feet of, uh, of feed by the time we feed that out uh, five, six, seven, 12 months later, there's always a lot of shrink, but it's, I noticed uh, what's coming out of that bunk uh, is uh, usually a clear water. It's, it's, not, it's not always a discolored water coming out. So I don't know why that's happening. And that's even in a, in a BMR that's relatively dry, like a 35% dry matter. Uh, so that's, we do, I recognize there's a lot of shrink in that. So, um, so I'm gonna be uh, perfectly honest here today. Um, it's, BMR is an awesome feed. It's what I call easy milk, and it, it typically does uh, save a little bit on feed costs because we can lower the NFC. Uh, but we do, on the other hand, uh, we do suffer with higher uh, rates of uh, fermentation loss or some type of shrink. Yeah.
0: Okay, uh, thank you. I have a few other questions, but I'll come back to them. I wanna make sure Hudai gets a chance to, to speak. Sorry, I keep budding, Hudai.
2: <laughs> no, no, thank you. Uh, you know, it is more clear for me now. But you know, I'm also cons- I, I have also the concern about the water requirements when we grow BMR compared to the corn silage. Does the BMR needs uh, less water compared to corn on the when They are growing.
1: Yeah, I, I think I, your your question broke up a little bit. Who die. So I think what you said. What you asked was: Is there different growing conditions required for the BMR when it comes to uh, water? Yep. Yeah. Okay. I can't answer that. Uh, we're in a uh, we're in a, uh, a temperate climate here, where there's uh, 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 all natural precipitation. So I, I can't, unfortunately, answer that.
2: Okay. Okay. Thank
1: I can. You, thank all I can you. tell you is the only thing I can tell you is that the drought tolerance seems to be. Um, not much different when I for, for instance last summer when we had a drought on the east coast and a drought in Nova Scotia you got to remember is basically when your when your driveway gets dusty okay it's not a true drought but it's it's a drought okay it's a drought um so uh but I don't notice a difference in the uh, two varieties as far as susceptibility to uh, to lack of rain yeah yeah one of okay. the things
0: that was pointed out, who is that um, because there's lower yields for the same volume, you need more land to grow. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so moving on to, I'm gonna do a couple more BMR questions, but then there were questions about some of the, um, when you were out at the bunks. So I'm gonna, I think I had one more BMR. Um, are you g- growing the BMR and corn silage as a mix or in separate fields and blending them as you fill the silo?
1: Oh, okay, yeah, so uh, yeah, I've seen both, all right. And uh, I know that uh, in this case here at Sunny Point, the seeds are actually being mixed together. Uh, so they're they're randomly uh, uh, seeded. So it's all, it's, it's uh, I think at certain times uh, we've done, and uh, say an eight row or 10 row corn planter, we've done five or five or, or four and four, just depending on the seed or, seed or width. But in this case, it's a blend. It's a mixture. Yeah. So that uh, probably... I, uh, yeah, part of the reason is because they're conventional here in Nova Scotia. We use, for instance, and on that particular farm, an 83 day. And then the uh, BMR is, is, I think, probably 10 days more maturity. I'm thinking it's in the mid 90s. And uh, so the thinking, uh, right or wrong, is that if we have a conventional, uh, it'll starch up more, and dry down faster uh, versus the, uh, the BMR that's going to be uh, a little higher moisture and a little lower starch. So we figured it's sort of uh, the, the, a nice compromise, yeah. All right, um, let's
0: see. So this is a, a comment from Dr. Um, Dr. Robert, personally, he doesn't think the lower milk per acre is a death blow. Um, he just thinks it means you have to probably use a blend of the BMR and conventional as you are doing. The blend could be in the field if practical or just in the feeding feeding out. So um, that's yeah. sort
1: of just following up.
0: Um, yeah. Next question, go, go ahead. Yeah, did you have a comment on that?
1: No, I just think it's an excellent point. It's uh, I think we I think there's a what we have to recognize is that there's a difference too in what uh, in what we have to do with an acre of land in certain parts of uh, Canada and U- the U.S. based on the land value. Okay, if we if we're in an area where land value is only three thousand an acre versus uh, an area that's uh, twenty five thousand dollars an acre, then I think it's different on how we get to uh, use that acre of land. Okay, here we we don't. Um, where land is a lot cheaper on the East Coast, uh, it's in certain areas, I should say, I know there's people that pay a lot of land in some areas, but uh, it's, I think we, we, can, we can afford that, you know, a slight yield loss if it, if it means more milk, okay, it's a, uh, because land cost is not a huge cost in certain, in certain areas where, certain regions where I work. Yeah.
3: Okay.
0: Thank you. Um, <laughs> one more word. The original seed stock was isolated in 1929. So it's, it's, it's been around a bit um, from the BMR. So back to some questions when you were out at the silo- silos, um, there was one that you answered whilst, whilst watching the, the video and I scolded you for it. Um, <laughs> it was your do, is it a grass plus clover plus alfalfa plus triticale or um what are you growing or what were you putting in
1: um yeah okay so uh that's right Marianne. you did lecture me for answering questions <laughs> too early uh so I, I just had a coffee and know was hyper um so the uh, the bunker silo actually was what we what i was showing you the the ensiled forage was a blend of Grasses, primarily orchard and fescue, and uh, a little bit of alfalfa. And uh, this producer, Sunny Point, uh, the field I showed you was actually, if you can believe this, it was a three percent orchard grass blend with ninety-seven percent alfalfa. But what you saw in that field was the complete opposite. You would think it was ninety-seven percent orchard grass, three percent alfalfa, but the uh, the seed. But this, uh, this farm, and even this region in particular, uh, we've been challenged with alfalfa establishment and retention. And we seem to get about uh, 10 to 14 cuts of alfalfa uh, before, it's, uh, before it's tired and it's gonna be, uh, actually after 14 cuts, it's certainly gone, but even after 10 cuts, the alfalfa seems to disappear. And 10 cuts is usually uh, two and a half or three seasons here. Um,
0: okay all right um so yeah i think my response was oh no he's answering questions he can't do that Um, so following up with some of these questions on the cropping and the grasses is it a mixed crop or is it grown on one piece of land
1: yeah i'm not sure if i understand that question particularly uh but it's primarily that that 90 7% 7% orchard grass, 3% alfalfa is what that particular producer is, is seeding, it ends up that most of the forages are end up being high grass-based. So I would say, and when you look at the forage analysis, there's two things we can look at that determine the, the alfalfa extent is essentially the uh, calcium, number one, and the uh, the ratio of ND, ADF and NDF. So it's, it's typically on average about a quarter alfalfa and about three quarters grass when you average all of the uh, Milk cow quality forages. Uh, the more tired alfalfa fields, say the ones that are like year three, four, five, whatever. Um, those are the ones that we that are primarily grass, and we we say we, but Phil is intentionally uh, harvesting those for dry cow and heifer feed, and at a late maturity, as I indicated on the video there a couple of times. We aim for that 40 to 42 percent ADF.
0: Okay. Um, catching up a little bit on some of the questions in the chat that were um, forage related. Um, this is from Dwight Rossler, and he said he remembers visiting Nova, Gauch- Nova Scotia robot farms with you back in the 1990s. You must have been like 12. Um, great presentation. Can you comment on feeding um, direct cut grasses as a portion of the diet during harvest as a source of sugar or harvesting direct cut and using formic acid, which is prohibited in the US as a fermentation aid to prevent spoilage. And this would probably be also common on, I know that when we visited Ireland, they were doing this on some of the zero graze type herds um, as well.
1: Yeah, Uh, Dwight, I definitely remember your visit. Um, It was was great. Uh, Dwight uh, and myself used to be on the CRF board and uh, I was probably in my mid twenties. Um, the uh, thank you, Maria. The uh, so, Dwight, I I cannot comment on that that area. It's not it's not something that I'm highly familiar with. The feeding of direct cut grasses. I when I in the different areas of Asia that I've traveled to, we do see a lot of fresh direct cut grasses that are actually fed that day, uh, especially in Vietnam and Indonesia. Um, and obviously there's there's challenges with that, the key bunk feeding and things like that, but I can't comment on fresh cut with the addition of formic acid as a fermentation aid story.
0: Okay. Um, this is a question from Alec Jenkins. He sees a lot of alfalfa and grain crop silages, are rye grasses and mixed pastures used at all in your area, either as grazed or conserved crops? And do people ever use silage bags or is it all put in bunks?
1: Yeah, okay, good. Alex, good to see you on here. Um, yeah, there is a lot of alfalfa in, uh, in, in some grain crop silages, but I would say grain crop silages on the East Coast are, are, are not that common, okay? Unless it's for feeding as a mature crop to heifers and dry cows. And it's typically not triticale, it's typically barley or wheat um, once in a while I do see them used as uh, first cutting uh, early maturities like a pre sort of boot stage, which I makes excellent excellent milk cow feed because of the high sugar content. Uh, yeah we did see a lot of rye here too. We, we do actually that farm I forgot to mention there's a lot of rye grass in there. Uh, Pasture is is uh, not that is not very common in on the east coast of Canada especially and uh, so we don't do a, there's not a lot of grazing. And dairy herds, anyways, but the rye grasses are fairly common in in the uh, silage silage crops. Uh, silage bags are not that common either. Um, if you go to uh, around the region here and you visit, say, ten farms, you might see one of them with an egg bag uh, of of high moisture corn, or um, or maybe a uh, a dry cow uh, mature silage for a smaller dairy that wants to have that high NDF. Uh, grass-based silage uh, for, for, uh, at a low feed-out rate, then the egg bags come in really handy. But no, it's not that common to have the egg bags here. Yeah.
0: Okay, a couple questions about snaplage. Um, when you pull a snaplage, when you pull a feed in from the AMTS feed library, what do you use for your
1: snaplage samples? Huh. Yeah, it's funny. I asked the same question to Lynn uh, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can say what I, I have been doing, uh, and it's to use the uh, to use uh, high moisture corn. There is a, I, I think there is a snaplage one. A, there's a lone snaplage uh, in the feed library, if I'm not mistaken. Unless that's in my own personalized library, I can't remember. Um, but typically, I'll use a, a high moisture. Uh, Earcorn, I think it's HMEC on, on AMTS, I'd have to look because that's the one that would have a little bit of the, uh, the cob in the uh, analysis, uh, but what I, what the reason why I was talking to Lynn about this yesterday is because I, I really want to, you know, uh, I should mention uh, Amber Craswell. she's a, uh, an associate of mine and she works with a lot of farms uh, through PI New Brunswick in Nova Scotia that use uh, Snaplage and even on her own farm. Uh, they have a really a really good robot operation, and they they use snappers as well. They're getting super production, and uh, we're we want to characterize that NDS a little bit better. So we're we're uh, we're, we're going to start doing more analysis of those NDS time points, and uh, I, I I don't have much to say about characterizing that starch. Uh, uh, at the laboratory, I'm going get so many wacky values on seven-hour starch digestibility. I just don't know what to think of those numbers. I'm just being honest here, okay? Uh, but I, we, I think one thing at least we can do is characterize that NDF. And so to do that, I would probably uh, either use the corn silage as a base uh, just so I can get that 3120 or 240. Um, not, not 100% sure, though, how to answer that question.
0: Okay. Uh, so just to follow up, yes, there is a snaplage and it is, um, if you key it in as 01200, that would give you, that would pull in that lone snaplage um, base feed. Question from Webin, um is corn 061020 ground corn or snaplage? I think he's referring to one of your, um, your diets that you showed.
1: Okay, yeah, I think that was CS, which means uh, corn silage, this the acronym that we use for corn silage, uh, which would be probably, I believe in the diet I showed you would have been around uh, 10 kgs of dry matter in the diet. And that's the blend of 50% BMR and 50% conventional by seeding population, not necessarily by volume, but by seeding population. Okay, the great like I said, is staying in the bunk, it's staying put until the new year uh, because I think that's the best. I think snaplage should sleep for a long time before we feed it.
0: All right, a couple, a question that, um, if I can find where it was in our early on, when you take those feed analyses and you showed us from the snaplage silage from the top, do you pour salt down the hole after coring to prevent a oh. V of spoilage due to air ingress?
1: Yeah, okay, good question. I saw that Dr. Charlie. Um, I don't want my clients to see that comment, though, because they're going to have me hauling bags of salt <laughs> up under their silos uh, trying to uh, fill those holes up. So um, anyways, no, the answer is no. Uh, we haven't done that. And uh, but I, I do, we've been doing this, this method here for around 15 years. Uh, I built that core because uh, I was flying back and forth to Newfoundland and Labrador once a month. And I had to... Uh, I had to get proactive on forage analysis they couldn't just show up and do a forage analysis and I found that came in very handy for overseas work as well because you could sample uh, the whole bunker silo uh, well in advance uh, and then have analysis and, uh, at hand when when we got to that correct spot uh, but I had been it's a we've refined that tool it's um, something that we uh, engineered and it's down to around a three-quarter inch hole at this point. It did start off as a uh, as an inch or an inch and a quarter. Uh, we've just made it smaller and smaller. So it's we aren't uh, most of the clients tell me that they're not uh, concerned with any spoilage that shows up there. They, we don't typically see any spoilage. It either we tape it up really well, and that's all we do. Actually, uh, we don't typically see any issues. Um,
0: how often? Um, and and this is sort of in regards to that blend bunk that you showed. My husband was walking through the room, and he said, "Well, how often do you do a sample when you um, when you create that sort of layer cake?"
1: Yeah. Okay. So so roughly every fifty to sixty feet. Okay. Uh, most of our most of our, you know, not just our clients, but I'm sure any any uh, really good. Uh, forage grower uh, tends to to do their silage uh, packing in a layer a long layer with a very like slight run to rise uh, like a 10 to 20 degree slope ideally Uh, not well 20 degree wouldn't be ideal but more like a 10 degree slope Uh, so therefore we we can pretty well uh, depending on how well they're layering we can we can determine how frequent we have to do those cores it is a lot of work and it's quite it's quite a it's, it's a lot of exercise actually and uh, you know we so therefore being being human uh, we don't want to do too many right uh, because it is probably 15 minutes of hard work each time we do one of those you get it sealed up it's always a uh there's there's a always a risk of oversampling too we found that if we do three or four sometimes in one bunk then it's the, you get three or four silage samples that are almost all the same. So we, usually what we do is we do one in the, near the front and one near the back. And if they're almost identical, then we're, we're just average those two for the middle, okay? But if they are extremely different, then we go back and we do, we're punch more holes in the middle of that bunk to get a better uh, uh, indication of what we're coming to, so.
0: Okay, um, and I just wanna assure everybody, I'm getting to your questions. Um, we just have a lot. Um, Hudai, don't feel that you have to remain silent if you have, if a question occurs or if you, um, if you have a comment, just butt in because otherwise I'll just keep plowing through these questions.
2: I don't have any question, you know, I would like to thank you, Dr. Daniel, about this very good presentation. Well, I have
0: to say, this is entirely what we were envisioning when we, we sort of came up with this idea is let's get, let's get some out on farms and and sort of stimulate some conversation. So, um, moving back to my list of questions, um, I'm going to tackle some of the calf calf barn questions. Um, can you share the composition of the dry TMR for the milk fed calves?
1: Uh, yeah, actually, um, it's. This. Uh, Marianne, actually, I think you're in control of this, so you. Yeah, probably, I am. Do you want me
0: to uh, let or, you share?
1: Yeah. Okay. I'll tell you what. Um, it's uh, it, it'll be a bit awkward for me to uh, to go and bring it up right now, but we, but I can remember quite well. Uh, it's a four kg dry matter intake, and that seems to be what the intake is for those uh, calves that are around that three month age, just uh, a month or so after weaning. So that's who we formulated for that three-month-old calf 90d and i can't um
0: daniel i'm sorry to interrupt i can't remember okay. was that early in the video because i could bring that oh,
1: up sorry that was right after the calf
0: okay I will. i uh, will find that and i'll bring it up while you talk
4: okay all
0: right let's see hmm. I think it's gone blank. So
1: <laughs> okay, I can uh, I can get like it go, in, I just, in the background.
3: All right. Does this show it?
1: Hmm. Let's see here. Have I? Have yeah, I, that's I... It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. okay. Excellent. All right. So you can see the contents of the diet, there. It's on the left side, and it it's it's uh. It, uh Wheat straw is the, the sole forage in there. And then cane molasses. The cane molasses that is source of sugar, number one for palatability, but number two, we, we thought that that would sort of help bind particles together. And therefore we'd have a little bit less separation, but I think the cats prove us wrong on that one, that, that liquid molasses is quickly uh, disappears or evaporates and it's not really doing that, that job of, of binding Particles together, um, calcium salts, and these are uh, just commercial calcium salts that are high in oleic acid, and fine ground corn grain, uh, soy pass uh, canola meal, and then a heifer premix. And like I said, we balance that from four kg's of DMI. And if we are getting, uh, this is fairly simple. We do model this every time. There's a change that we do. We do we model it the MP and the ME allowable gain. Uh, but what we found is that, and this is just not my experience, this is just, uh, just me just listening on the field to, to Amber and to other uh, experts out there and uh, producers in general, uh, that if they overeat, then we simply just increase the straw content closer to 20%. And if they uh, undereat, then then we can tweak that straw down a little bit closer to uh, 15%. So that also depends on the straw quality and the fineness of chop. Um, so some, some calves, some barns tend to eat a lot of that straw. They love it. And uh, then we have to tweak the level. Uh, so it's a high CP diet, and it's a very high energy starch and ether extract are both, uh, and sugar are both so all, all high, so.
0: Okay, what are um, your wet calves? What are you feeding them in terms of crude protein? And, and uh, are they on milk or mix?
1: Yeah, okay, good, good question. Uh, yeah, they're on a milk replacer. Um, they're, they have an automatic calf feeder and they're consuming around 10 liters a day. Um, and it's, uh, they're also fed this calf. That's the first barn actually we went into, uh, when we entered that facility was that calf pen, those are all the milk fed calves and the, uh, the milk fed calves are, are also fed both a pelleted calf starter and also this dry calf TMR. And they're given the choice as to what they want to eat.
0: Okay, and what size are the calves that are being fed this TMR mix it's showing? Uh,
1: That's a good question, actually. Um, Those numbers are not top of my mind. Uh, All I can tell you is the uh, the age is between the birth and four months of age. And then they're weaned off of it gradually at the five month age. Onto that uh, wet TMR or silage-based TMR.
0: All right. Um, and while we're while we're on the subject of the TMR mix, how often do you blend the TMR, and is it presented that? And how often is it presented to the calves, or does it pick up a yeah. barn smell?
1: Yeah. Good. Yeah. Awesome questions. Uh, so we so this is blended every two weeks. And it seems to be okay that way. It's a fine chopped straw, so we don't get a lot of separation sorting. Uh, and it, it, so it's blended, then it's dumped into a commodity bay. Then it's covered with a, uh, a tarp, a heavy, heavy tarp to prevent birds uh, picking through it, and defecating in it. And does it get a burn smell? I don't know, it's a good question. Does it get a burn smell? I'm sure it does, uh, but it's fed uh, daily.
0: Do you put the straw through a hammer mill?
1: Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Now um, it's hammer milled to about to around one inch. And it's a it's not it's not a true hammer mill. It's it's a uh, it's one of those tomahawk uh, round barrel choppers that also does square bales. It's just a rotating drum against a set of knives. Uh, so it it's probably the the as far as bang per for Bacos in Canada, it's probably the best machine we can get for the for the money spent. However, um, that also goes through his um, uh, uh, vertical mixer uh, with knives. So, and as he's adding the molasses, and we live in Canada, so molasses runs pretty slow. Uh, it, <laughs> it goes through a lot of mixing as well. Again, so that's a further uh, reduction of particle size as he's mixing it
0: okay we have a couple um crop questions but before we move to those i'm gonna get to some animal based questions um firstly how what size are these cows and um are the stalls big enough the ones that you were showing on this particular farm
1: Hmm, that's a good question I think we can get away with a lot with stand bedding. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to say that, um, are the stalls perfect? I, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't, it's it's a, uh, that's, you know, is a 52 inch stall a little better than a 50, right? These are all 40 inch, 48 inch stalls, by the way. I assume we're talking with the lactating barn here. Is that is that your Yeah, I area?
0: think so. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, so what that producer does to to really maximize on on, on uh, cow comfort is he he beds very often, and you guys could see by the uh, just walking through that up barn tour like those those uh, stalls are uh, are at least uh, curb height as far as sand goes. Um, now is it uh, it's a it's it's quite easy to to. Say okay, well that you know that that, that crossbar there would probably impair a lunging, and uh, there's uh, maybe not a perfect loop design, and maybe a little wider would be a little better, a little longer would be better. Um, I think we can get away with a lot with sand bedding, though. So.
0: Do your farmers consider genetics when um, selecting so that they don't have bigger animals, especially if the stalls are are on the smaller side?
1: Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I think most of our clients uh, are, are selecting for for traits that are related more to. Uh, I, I think. I think we're probably all pretty common in this area of genetic selection. We're we're not selecting for size anymore. I mean, that's that's certainly uh, the norm. Not to select for stature or uh, or capacity, um, and I think that it's actually probably being even selected against. Somewhat, and uh, so are we. But have we considered crossbreeding to reduce the size of the animal on, on some of these farms? Not, not commonly. I think we did go through a stage where crossbreeding was was being thought of a little bit more than it is now. But I, I wouldn't say that it's it's uh, being considered. No. so
0: Sorry. Um, When group moving fresh cows, um, once fresh, how many hours, days do they stay in the calving pen post calving? And do you move them in pairs or groups given the size of the herd?
1: Yeah, so the group moved actually when they entered the pre-fresh pen, uh, which is three weeks on mature cows and I think four weeks on uh, lactation one, or sorry, springing heifers, not lactation one, but springing heifers. Uh, so there, the uh, spring and heifers are in there for uh, for a little longer, just because I think of uh, there's enough space, number one, and number two, there's uh, there, I think there's maybe a little bit less, um, little maybe a little more tendency for those ones to cap a little bit earlier, and so they're they're moved as a group into the fresh, uh, sorry, pre-fresh pen, but obviously once they fresh and they're moved one by one into the fresh pen, okay the springing heifers are in the uh, springing heifer or pre-fresh springing heifer pen for four weeks. And then as they calve one by one, they're then put into the same fresh pen that the multiparous animals are in. So.
0: All right. While, while continuing to discuss those um, pre-fresh animals, put um, this is from Dr. DeVries. Um, putting this Bringers on fresh diet pre-calving as a way to reduce stress on them is interesting. If you had to choose between that or not commingling them with mature cows post-fresh and still keeping them separate as pre-fresh, which would it be? Or maybe do both to minimize the stress in a perfect world.
1: Yeah, Okay, good question, Trevor. Uh, a little shout out too, uh, Trevor and myself, are doing a, we're, we're going to work on a session together actually for the Western Canadian Dairy Seminar, Red Deer in March. So I hope, uh, hope some of you folks on this call can make it in for that. Look forward to that. Um, I just have to get my mind wrapped around this question here if you had to choose between that or not, or not co them with mature as post-fresh.
4: Uh,
1: which would be, oh, that's it. I don't know how to answer that question, Trevor. Um, I can tell you, yeah. So the whole point of this was to minimize one, at least one stress. So, okay, is it a perfect diet for a, a pre-fresh heifer? Uh, uh, probably not. Okay, I think what we would need to focus on for that pre-fresh heifer is is high dry matter intake. Um, the, you know, I an appropriate amount of nutrients not not overfeeding but not underfeeding and i think we can tell by the manure and just see the dmis in that pen the dmi on that pen we do actually track separately and it's around 13 to 14 kilograms consistently which is pretty good for a spring and heifer pen um, so i don't know what i mean there's pros and cons to uh to to both of these options um, we I should also note that we try it. we are actively trying this on the same system on two other farms and our biggest uh, concern going into this uh, sort of anecdotal trial was are we going to get uh, too much uh, uh, utter edema uh, that seemed to be what was what came up uh, from from other experts. Uh, uh, you know is that question are we some people thought we were crazy actually I posted this on LinkedIn over a year ago, and we had a lot of good input from experts around the world. just I asked people what they thought about this is it something that's uh, good bad uh or what and uh most of the people are concerned about edema uh the other thing was uh it's a it's there 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 is an diet being fed to mature cows pre fresh it's a very uh, tightly balanced. Uh, they do urinary pHs weekly and then they they adjust, they tweak that level of anion weekly. Uh, so we took, we, we also took the heifers uh, off the anionic program. Uh, so they're not on any calcium control program at all. Actually, they're getting a fairly high dose of calcium. So is that a challenge too that's being presented to them? A little bit higher incidence of hypocalcemia, I'm not really sure. Uh, so... This is just a discussion. I'm not really sure how to, how to answer that question though.
0: Oh, no, that's, that's interesting. And I do have to say, I admire when you throw something out there on LinkedIn, um, the engagement that you get. It's great to see the community um, talking and, and, and hopefully learning from each other. Um, so, and, and you're one of the leaders on that. So great job that you do there, Daniel.
1: Um, um thanks, Marianne. Your checks in the mail. I appreciate that. Nice compliment. <laughs> uh,
0: so, so you mentioned a while back it is Canada and the molasses does flow slowly. A question from Weebin, and I know that he was asking us earlier, um, maybe last week, um, do you does winter cold have a big impact on milk production in the area you serve? Do you make some nutritional modification to diets, and what managerial measures do you suggest farmers to take during cold spells?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah that was a that was a question. Uh, so, huh, We we don't even think about the cold weather to be honest. <laughs> um, we we uh, how do they say this uh, in? Uh, in sweden and norway um we we embrace winter okay <laughs> so uh, we try to go into this uh, season with a positive attitude so uh but here's a few things that we that we do notice so um certainly a higher caloric use and the amts can uh, can adjust for that in the energy calculations uh, requirements just by in- adjusting the, uh, the barn environment okay so that's number one it's pretty easy to model um the other thing too is uh, is there's a difference in colds here you know, within Canada's The dry inland cold, which is uh, very low humidity, cool, and then there's the uh, the coastal cold, which is a uh, uh, for instance uh, this morning, yesterday morning, when it was 0.5 Celsius, and it was uh, humidity probably of 80, 90 percent, and a light breeze, and that's bone chilling cold, right? Okay, and it's not even winter yet. This is just uh, November, so we have to uh, take into account that. Uh, the different humidities as well. Um, do we make adjustments just because the winter's around the corner? Uh, well, no, I, I have to be 100% honest. We, When I'm formulating diets, we're always trying to maximize the, uh, the intake of carbohydrates. That's number one. Carbohydrates are our cheapest source of nutrients here. And uh, in Canada, I'm going to say, carbohydrates either from starch or uh, in some places, sugar through byproducts and, uh, but notably NDF, those are the three carbohydrates that we really have to maximize the intake on. And it doesn't matter the season, we're always trying to maximize the intake of NFC and NDF, because NDF is gonna keep that cow healthy and that rumen healthy, and it's gonna ensure uh, a lower risk of acidosis and just proper rumen function. but NFC is what's gonna maximize metabolizable protein production by the bacteria. And those are, the, those are the two biggest things that we pay attention to. Um, we try to push as much fat as uh, economically feasible, um, that as long as it can be justified uh, with the calculator. Uh, so right now, fat is super expensive just because of the uh, shipping crisis. Uh, so we, we're sort of, we're a little bit uh, less uh, on fatty acids currently in diets, whereas we used to feed 500 grams of a, uh, of a palmitic acid now we're down to usually two or 300 grams, if if any at all. Many farms have pulled completely off of it as an energy source. Uh, so uh, so that's what I try to do when I'm formulating and try to maximize uh, NFC and NDF intake. Um, I know that doesn't uh, answer your question completely. I sort of went on a- uh, No, no, side, I uh, think,
0: yeah, I think that's, that's sort of, I think, and we've been, I think it's still here. If he has, more related to that. Yeah, um, certainly feel free to chat or um, question. Uh, back to that calf, the calf diet, what is the white material in the calf feed?
1: Yeah, and just one more, one more part about that last question. Uh, I, think it's, I think we're all aware that it's the weather cools, the intake also goes up on these cattle. So there's some compensation being done there as well, all right? And that's not because we are changing the diet or anything like that. But yes, the forages are better fermented as the winter progresses here, because uh, most of them are harvested from May until October for grasses and alfalfa. And then the corn silage is September this year, and the snappage is October. So the, by, by the time February, March, April comes around, when the, and that's usually when our cold weather is here, uh, the intake is just higher anyway. So the cows are compensating somewhat for that. Uh, and, uh, Sorry, uh, the white the white uh, particles that you see in the uh, calf ration, uh, mm-hmm. that is uh, the uh, calcium salt.
0: Okay. And um, just to, as a, a shameless much. shameless plug for our program and some of the features in it, it's um, nice to apply an environmental template that automatically adjusts for what time um, the temperature is outside. and then when you're doing formulation, you can see that, the um, predicted dry matter intake maybe has changed over what you had previously. So um, shameless okay. plug. <laughs> which one, um, back to calves, which one is better to either use straw or alfalfa hay as a forage during the two to five month period?
1: Yeah, I bet you in some areas alfalfa hay would probably be a, a uh, an excellent option. Uh, and I think it, I think like any any feeding decisions, uh, we we need to do what's best uh, for the region that you live in or, or uh, the feeds that you can produce in your region. In this particular region, uh, wheat straw is uh, much easier to procure uh, at, a, at the right price, one that's bearable. Uh, but I bet in other areas of uh, U.S. or Canada or even um, uh, Spain or wherever alfalfa hay would be probably a a a lower cost option.
0: Okay, perfect. Um, A question on production and supplementation. So you've shown the results in terms of production, but could you talk about protein and fat content by lactation and period? Um, Would this analysis indicate possible interest in amino acid supplementation?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, good, good point. Um, It's it's one of my, uh, one of the things I'm trying to uh, that I'm really geeking out a lot on right now is just uh, playing with amino acids and um, just trying to see how they fit and where they fit. And uh, I'm going into this with a pretty open mind. Uh, so we've been primarily using uh, uh, high bypass uh, soy products to to uh, to help generate uh, EMP levels that we want, and that along with uh, higher as high as healthy or economically feasible levels in it of nfc to to increase the MP, so we're getting a good chunk of lysine uh from that number one uh as far as uh, supplementing um, additional amino acids to boost that lysine uh i think it's it's uh, I, I think it has its place okay there's a bit of sticker shock in lysine i, I will acknowledge um that we have to uh Sometimes uh, work with the client to, to help them understand. At the end of the day, this is a client decision, um, Mr. Client, Mr. Mrs. Client. Option one here is to feed canola and soy path, for instance, and we're going to achieve this level of MP. Um, however, uh, here's option B: is to feed. Uh, uh, canola and soy pass that maybe reduce that soy pass a little bit and use a little bit of supplemental lysine to uh, to boost that, uh, to bring that lysine, return that lysine to where it was. Um, what is, what would you like to do? That's a question that we often put uh, to our clients to answer rather than, than uh, telling them uh, what, what they should do in this situation. Uh, so it's, Uh, Methionine is the one that I think garners uh, the most interest here in this milk market on the uh, eastern half of Canada that still uh, pays uh, uh, quite well for milk protein. Uh, However, we also are limited, uh, many of you may not know this, uh, unless you're from Canada or worked in Canada, uh, but we're also, uh, because we're in a supply management system, they tightly control uh, the, uh, the production of milk fat and milk protein. And they do that, they they try to limit the amount of milk protein production uh, by having a a minimum uh, SNF to butterfat ratio. And that generally means that if we go too high in milk protein, we will get paid for it well, but if we go over that certain SNF to butterfat ratio, uh, 2.2, then we start to get penalized for that that extra protein production. So, um, So that said though, I think methionine because it's uh, can you can have both the milk protein and a milk fat response. Uh, it does fit in well to to our milk pricing system as long as it's not too expensive. So
0: is um oh, is, be, uh, sorry go ahead.
1: Uh, yeah so I, I, most of the time we balance for MP uh, on these diets MP and ME. Uh, the other time that we the other uh, on some terms we balance for just methionine along with MP uh, for a few farms, we balance for lysine, methionine, and MP. Always MP, though. Generally, the other thing that we balance for in protein is rumen ammonia, uh, and we we adjust that rumen based on uh, just some of the advice I I have from Dr. Tom and uh, Lynn, not to let that rumen get too high or too low. Just tweak it with, uh, with different degradable protein sources. Um, the other thing that we do is, uh, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Marianne, go ahead.
0: Um, the penalization for the changed um, butter fat to protein ratio, is that because it's going into cheese or, and it decreases the yield or what?
1: No, I think it's, yeah, a good question. I don't know the, um, the what fully determines the demand for uh, for milk solids in our, in our system, other than obviously consumer consumption patterns would be the biggest influence on that. But the way that in supply management, um, the, One of the ways that that has to be sort of controlled is uh, is to somehow limit the amount of milk protein uh, that that is being produced by that farm and sent into the uh, the the processing, uh, because the processors may not have fully be able to um, uh, utilize or sell that that protein if it's in excess, especially. Uh, So, so in the, the way they they do that in the western part of Canada is by providing a much heavier uh, weighting on milk fat value, and the way they do it on the east in the, in the east is by limiting the uh, the ratio of snf to butter fat So that um, it's a fairly it's fairly simple if you see it on a piece of paper. A little bit more difficult for uh, for me to explain here with only uh, two coffees, uh, but we uh, generally. Um, they pay for that milk protein to reproduce, but we can only ship so much of it, okay?
0: Okay. Um, just uh, sort of a follow-up to the question where, asking about straw or alfalfa hay, um, Sadat so says, feeding alfalfa to calves at the age of two to five months decreases compound feed consumption and growing, in his experience. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you have a comment on that?
1: Yeah, I could see that in free choice situations, especially if you have some beautiful uh, western alfalfa or something like that. Um, so we, which we we don't have here. <laughs> uh so typically if our if our calves here in, in eastern Canada are fed hay, it's going to be grass-based. And uh the consumption can be pretty good if it's if it's hay that's put up well. Um, the, I I don't really have a lot more to say about that. Most of our a lot of our uh, clients now are using some form of a mixture of straw and and uh, concentrate, and they they basically just let the calf uh, free choice on that blend.
0: So, um, back to the pro the protein conversation in the milk. Um, do you do you look at MUNs in Canada?
1: Yeah, definitely. You- yeah, yeah, okay. for sure, for sure, yeah.
0: All right, and um, how much, and this is, um, I'm hoping you're going to say MP, not crude protein, but how much crude (laughs) protein percent would you feed to mature cows that are yielding 14,000 liters rolling herd average?
1: Yeah, uh, the first part of your question, sorry. Um, How much much
0: crude protein percentage would you recommend? Oh,
1: okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll I'll be honest. So we still do use uh, just crude protein on some bird diets. Okay, I'll, I'll be I'll, I'll just I'll volunteer that. All right. <laughs> so, um, you know what? Because uh, it's it's you know it's in some of these farms uh, we we use a single source of protein that's primarily canola meal. Okay, and uh, you know MP becomes a, a very handy tool when you use uh, two or three four sources of, uh, supplemental protein. Uh, but I have to confess, uh, we do get away with using single source protein on a lot of farms and we get very good production, uh, in the 40 to 45 kg range. Uh, so, um, so mine, so mine is a tool we definitely use to adjust the, uh, but mostly to, uh, to look at, uh, two things, room pneumonia and, uh, the, uh, intake of, uh, NFC for starch or sugar and that, that's how I personally use it. I use it as just one more tool all right. The first thing I'll look at probably because this is the easiest is I'll look at rib pneumonia. I'm really confident by the way in our forage analysis. Um, the, uh, the, the, the fact that we go in and core, we do a deep core uh, and we know it, precisely what that cow is eating. It's a very Uh, This isn't a core that just gets that top four feet of that 12-foot bunk. This is a core that goes right down to the concrete. And ideally not into the concrete, because then that means i got to spend 10 minutes sharpening that core Mm -hmm. again. But this is a very accurate, and I think that's what gives us that added confidence. And the other thing that gives us a lot of confidence is just this program, the CMTPS model that that AMTS is using. It's, It's given us a ton of confidence in predicting uh, cow output okay more confidence than we've ever had before uh, because a lot of times we model that diet we're within a kg of actual production and that gives uh, nutrition is a really good tool to go not only to to uh to come out to that farm with the new diet and say this is what you can expect uh but to just uh it's uh but just also to um to evaluate a diet and just say hey you know this is probably what's wrong in this case in this case in this case this is what you may want to do. Um, that all said, Marianne, I can't remember what your question was, Tori.
0: <laughs> uh, so it was with regards to crude protein percentage and you nicely answered that you look at MP, but you still do use yeah. crude protein. And I would offer up that, you know, when we're doing a, a training, we we try to, to point to going to the MP, but Lynn will say, the crude protein is a good measure for when you know the management of the farm. If it's, if it's a farm where maybe the management isn't top shelf and they're, you, you don't wanna really dial down their crude protein and you'll maybe let those diets float up there. But um, if it's a farm where they're really paying attention, then probably you talk more MP than crude protein. It's a matter of what the farmers are sort of used to hearing too.
1: Yeah, certainly, certainly. And it's, uh, and again, I'll just go back to the fact that if we have a, uh, if we have a situation with single pro single source protein being fed, um, Liz, that's a very good point. Lynn. there's a lot of wisdom in that statement, I think. Uh, and if we have a single source protein, it's very difficult to, uh, to go and, uh, start tweaking MP. Uh, it's just going to be very especially with canola meal. Um, so uh, it, we're very limited, I guess, if we just have single source.
0: Okay, um, moving back to, let's see, I know I missed a couple and there was sort of a comment from Dr. Charlie. Um, this is a, from Stefano in Italy, Ciao from Italy, half tires on the grass silage, are they um, heavy enough for good compression?
1: Yeah, Stefano, how are you doing? Uh, so I have a, yeah, I, I, these are good size half tires. Okay, these are nice thick ones. I have seen half tires that are too light. Some of them are light enough to blow around in the wind, actually. Uh, are we getting much compression from this? I don't know. I, I mean, is it, is the point of a silo covering for compression or is it just to keep that plastic bonded clinging to the silage, right? I think we, our compression needs to be done with the, uh, the tractor on that, on those final loads that come into the silo. Uh, so I, I don't know if, if we need to worry about it being something that compresses it or if it's just some, something that's heavy enough to keep that silage clinging to the side, sort of the plastic clinging to the silo. So.
0: Yeah, I think I, I assumed that that was the goal of the tires. And the half tires make it really nice that it doesn't give a place for rats to hide. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: it's, it's a very good point, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's a lot so, less fun though. I've thrown enough tires in my days, and it, it certainly is fun when you get a full tire full of uh, rotten water and you throw it to uh, to your brother. Um, yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's very unfortunate that some of that sometimes that water lands on his face. So.
0: Oh, that's sad. Um, <laughs> this is back to the discussion of formic acid. So it's more a comment than a question. So, addition of formic acid actually inhibits the fermentation. You get a much slower start. If you want to get a good, strong fermentation in direct cut grass, use good management and well, a well proven inoculate. The formic acid addition will drop the pH immediately, but the proven inoculant, Phew, sorry, LAB and enzymes will overtake it after two to three days.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So, that was um, just a comment back when we were talking about uh, um, putting inoculants on, or not inoculants, formic acid on direct cut silage. Mm-hmm. Um, question. That's a good comment, yeah, very good comment. Yeah. How often do you recommend that you check corn silage? And I'm assuming he maybe means um, uh, feed analysis.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, and some farms we, uh, we test them once a month. Um, now there's very few farms where we do face samples. Okay. Uh, that, that farm is actually one that I will do a few more face samples on. And that's because it's it's, uh, it's fairly close to where I live and it's a farm I can get to frequently. So I'll do a face sample. And they also have the other, the other reason I do a face sample on that farm is because they have a, uh, a self-propelled feed mixer silo kink and they can uh, load one ton of corn silage into that mixer, mix it out, mix it around for uh, five minutes, and then dispense uh, enough sample to do a uh, laboratory analysis. So that's a really good accurate way to do it. Most of the other farms, we do coring, and we do coring every 50 to 60 feet. Okay,
0: and I think, um, you know, maybe another shameless plug, Um, I think maybe I wrote a blog about this a few years back. um, And it, I think, is it Norm St. Pierre did like a cost benefit analysis of frequency of forage sampling based on herd size, if I remember right. And, you know, that could be old news too. So, um, but I
1: think- Yeah, that's a good, yeah. There's actually an active trial study right now, actually at Cornell, being, I think it's uh, the reason why I know this because uh, Casey Havix, uh is involved with this trial, and she works for Cornell Extension. And uh, they're they're uh, they're doing some correlations right now on the uh, Casey. If you're on this call, maybe you can uh, can uh, comment in the chat box on that that trial that they are correlating the uh, on-farm sampling with uh, with other variables to see what the uh, extent to try to come up with what the the best uh, frequency would be.
0: Okay, I don't see her. Um, (laughs) let's see, I think I am out of questions. Daniel, this has been great. Um, You get to do it again. um, Tonight and (laughs) expect you know, fortify yourself because I expect there'll be a lot of questions. Um, Let's see, I actually have found that post. Um, I'm going to put it in the chat. So here we go.
1: Which post is this one, uh, Marianne?
0: The one I wrote.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Let me let me get it to go into the right person. Um, Everyone. Enter. I think this might be the right one. Yeah. And if not, just search feed analysis, and there's other ones. Um, All right. Unless I see more questions, and I hope I didn't miss anybody, um, I'm gonna let you go get more coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciated the little hand that offered up a glass of something, maybe water early on in the webinar. I thought. (laughs) 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 Minions.
1: Water for the uh, the morning one and uh, Grape juice for the evening one, maybe.
0: Oh so. yeah, grape juice, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Daniel, thank you. And um, thank you everybody that, that stayed and listened to the questions. Oh, we have a new question, maybe. Um, no, it is a thank you. And everybody is definitely, um, we had so many great webinars, Daniel. Um, I didn't expect otherwise, but thank you so much. We'll see you this afternoon. You don't have to join quite so early unless you want to. And um, I'll make sure that we've got it so that we can see your smiling face as you answer questions <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: um, and not mine. <laughs>
1: and <laughs> and be,
0: be prepared for Argentina.
1: <laughs> so, All right, well, I, anybody can uh, reach out to me at, uh, on WhatsApp. At, uh, I, I think the number is indicated at the very beginning there. It's 1902 692 1447 And uh, I'd be happy to discuss anything around this uh, around the seminar this webinar okay perfect
0: perfect thank you and we'll get um for anybody that's still listening we'll get this um recorded processed and up well we got it recorded but we'll get it processed and up with tonight's questions as well so um very good we will see you tonight thank you you, everybody um and have a good day or good evening depending on where you are so goodbye Let's start moving with questions. I am going to ask, um, uh, to give uh, Paula if if she is ready with some questions or I will ask Marcos to go ahead and um, ask some questions so that I can stop talking. Okay. Everybody,
5: welcome. Thanks, Maria. Thanks, Daniel, for the presentation. I think You're a welcome. real nice farm and I think it was really nice. I have a question about, I think you, you make a good point about the processing of the snap and the you look for storage and more and could improve it. And have you measured like a starch in feces? How it how, how change, like a, what would be a high number for the kind of corn that you
1: have? Oh uh, yes,
5: You have this number?
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question, and uh, I'd like to start uh, the question and answer period. But I guess first, asking, can everybody hear me? Okay, uh, that's important. Yes. Excellent. Thank you. Number one. Uh, number two is it's uh, Remembrance Day in Canada, so I'd like to take a moment to uh, to share uh, this my the uh, this presentation here. I think uh, it's 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 a. Um, I'd like to uh, actually. Uh, make note that have family that served in the wars and uh, a, it's a day of remembering uh, their commitment to our country and to our freedom. So first of all, I'll say that. Um, now to your question, it's a, uh, I think one of the biggest issues actually we see as I alluded to earlier, is the fact that we have a lot of starch coming through into the manure. And it's still one of the biggest challenges is processing that High moisture corn or snaplage or even dry corn or wheat, uh, fine enough. I find that often I'll go into farms and I'll see little bits of starch in the manure, so we do test it quite often. And what I consider too high would be four or five percent. If it's three percent on high moisture corn, uh, I think it gets a pass. Uh, if it's one or two percent with fine ground corn, barley, or seed flake corn, I think that's ideally where we want it to be. So it's a huge opportunity though, to, uh, to put more of that starch into a uh, milk, so. Uh,
5: going a little bit further on this corn issue, like uh, you comment on the use of BMR. So how how is your experience on BMR, like uh, agronomically, productivity, what kind of, how, how, how you see that stuff? Yeah, BMR is, uh, first of all,
1: ground brown mid uh, for folks on this uh, webinar today that are not from an area that produces BMR. And what that is is a load lignin uh, corn plant that was selected for that trait uh, that they identified uh, many years ago. And it's become commercially available in Canada and the US over the past probably 15 years at least. and. The reason why we feed that is just uh, because it's got a higher digestibility and lower UNDF. So we get just simply more TDN uh, per unit of NDF from BMR. And on this farm, we actually feed a, a seed, a combination of a conventional uh, 83 day uh, along with the uh, 95 day BMR. And we find it's a really good combination. So what we get is the best of both worlds. We get a uh, the, the conventional, which matures earlier, has higher levels of starch, and is a uh, slightly higher in dry matter. And then we get the BMR, that's really high in digestible NDF. So together we find it makes a really good combination. We have many farms that grows just BMR, and we have uh, great luck with it. I, um, as I have said many times before, we consider this uh, easy milk. When we add BMR to a diet to replace a conventional, we always see a, uh, an increase in dry matter intake. And that's after we correct for the energy levels in the, uh, in the diet. So we still get that intake uh, increase due to the uh, lower and the higher NDF digestibility. Uh, so we find it always pays, even though the seed costs more and we have to usually apply one or two additional uh, sprays with with, a fungicide, we still find at the end of the day, it's a more profitable venture. Okay,
5: thank you, Marianne, I think you can go ahead. Okay,
0: Marcos, thank you. Thank you. Um, Paula, if you don't mind, I'll ask a couple questions and then I imagine you have quite a few and you wanna get going on some of them and then you and I can trade back and forth. Okay. Um, so I had a question and there was a comment from Gabrielle. Uh, great presentation and a beautiful property. Thank you for sharing. Um, their calves do look amazingly healthy. And um, this person would like to know how do they manage their colostrum? And I was wondering also, what's the housing on those pre-weaned calves? The older calves you showed us and that they look lovely, but wondering about the pre-weaned.
1: Okay, actually, when we walked into that calf barn, if you recall, uh, probably 25 minutes into the presentation, the first pen that we walked into were, were the milk-fed calves. Ah. And uh, so there, the, uh, the newborns are housed in individual pens uh, for just a couple of days during their colostrum feeding. And that colostrum, actually, uh, to be 100% honest, uh, we do find there's a challenge at certain times of the year with Colossian production from those dams and we're, we're not entirely sure. Uh, we have some theories. I would love to get feedback. Uh, I think that's a purpose of, of tonight's uh, uh, Q&A as well as to have a discussion about some of the challenges that not only uh, you see but, but I see myself. So I would love to get some feedback on why the Colossian production might be lower. And we've, we do feed a controlled energy dry cow diet. Uh, so we have very good quality uh, colostrum, but we just don't have an abundance of it. So often uh, we find ourselves, we have to supplement a little bit more colostrum uh, by buying that, by buying additional colostrum. We have to be really careful. Um, the other thing that, uh, so that colostrum is, is a very conventional, it's fed for a couple of days uh, to newborns. After that, they're put into a, um, Uh, The milk fed pen, which uh, I didn't show it on the video, but that's a automatic milk feeder. And they're on that until they're weaned at around 50 to 60 days. And it's typically a 10 liter uh, consumption of milk replacer on average. Uh, During that time, uh, during that milk fed, fed phase, they're also given two dry feeds. One of them, one of those is the dry calf TMR. The other one is the pelleted calf starter that you saw in the uh, bunk, and that little poly uh, tube that was uh, in front of the calves. So,
3: okay,
0: <clears throat> thank you, Daniel. Do you um do you see any relationship of the colostrum problem to um, which which calving it is? Is it primarily, or and is it it's seasonal?
1: Yeah. Good question. Um, we, uh, yeah, I say one thing that, that, and I know it's in, I, I know there's not much research that can really, um, correlate that or back this up, but what I'm going to say is that we are in a very high straw diet there. Uh, I showed you the dry cow diet briefly. Uh, there's pretty heavy mass of chopped wheat straw. And we did notice that when we went to a higher level of straw, the cost of production went down. OK, so we would think as a nutritionist that possibly high straw, therefore a lower uh, intake of metabolizable energy. But that's not the case. These calves are consuming uh, 15 to 17 kilograms of dry matter intake in that uh, close up period. Um, we now is is there a relation between the straw, the high straw diet and the uh, lower colostrum production? We're not sure. We had to answer your question, though, Marianne. We haven't seen a strong correlation between uh, the the season, uh, apart from a little bit, there's a tendency to have a little bit less uh, in the winter. Uh, but we haven't seen a difference uh, among lactations. So,
0: okay, um, Paula, would you like to ask a few questions?
6: Yes. Hi. Hi. Hey, Paula. Thank you very much, Daniel. It was a a really great presentation. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm going to to make, uh, skip uh, a few questions and go through one that is related with uh, the little calves. Uh, Which is the the main objective of using fat and rumen protected protein in those calves and which is the mature weight of the cows in those herds you show us?
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Good questions. Um, so we don't have a, there's not a lot of, uh, uh, rationale for using the protected fat and the protected soy. It's not really protected soy. Sorry. It's a heat treated soy and it's a calcium salt so not all not 100 bypass or protect it however um the, the reason for using that fat the fatty acid in there is uh so that we can just provide an additional source of fatty acids in that diet just so it eases the transition from the milk bed, uh onto the uh, dry feeding phase and we're barely getting four fat, I think, or 4.2% fat in that dry calf TMR. So I would prefer to have more oils in there uh, just to ease that transition because they're obviously coming off a very high fat diet onto one that's very little. So so that's one reason. Uh, The reason for feeding that soy product is because uh, essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to um, maximize the use of the ingredients that that farm already has in stock in the inventory. And uh, it's although it may not uh, I, I would have higher, uh, more ideal proteins that I would probably add to that dry calf TMR. But that happens to be the two sources that we that we primarily feed on that dairy at the time at the current time. So that's the reason for splitting it up between canola and uh, soy plus in this particular case.
6: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, so my, my second question is from John. Uh, what is your experience with uh, f- uh, ensiling a forage with inoculants and uh, do you use them in those herds uh, you talked about?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd say probably half to three quarters of our, of our clients at Scottsum Nutrition and when I go beyond that client base, I would say that probably half to three-quarters of the, of the uh, dairy farmers in this region of the world are using inoculants on corn silage, grass and alfalfa silage, and uh, almost all the time on high moisture corn Uh, uh So um, it's one of those things we trust the science on. And uh, of course, it's really important to select the right inoculant, as, as the inoculant people would strongly agree with, I, I think. But... I think for every, just considering the small cost, so in the grand picture of producing forage, uh, we we definitely we advocate it. Um, it's uh, now one of the challenges I see with inoculants is proper application, which you can probably many people on this on this uh, webinar can probably relate to. There's there's still challenges out there as far as getting the right amount applied, getting it consistently applied, and a lot of times if the uh, producer is supposed to use uh, say 20 bottles of inoculant on a certain crop. Um, you often find that there's five or six bottles left over uh, for that tonnage. So, it sends, uh, but I think it is a really good investment. So, uh, the other thing I'd like to say before um, we get too far into this is that, uh, and this is uh, giving kudos to Marianne. Um, I I took some time last week to uh, to present to make the videos for this presentation, and I basically dumped it on Marianne. To paste and cut them together, and she did a great job. Um, so I'd say that a lot of the work uh, done tonight to get those videos together was actually done by Marianne, and I had a lot of coaching from her. So it was the first time I did a session like this. So I really appreciate her help. And uh, the other thing I'd like to do is uh, thank uh, my my family. I took a lot of time the last couple weekends just to to work on. these videos and whatnot. So uh, it's, I I appreciate the time that my family provided me to do that. So, yeah.
0: Oh, thank, thank you, Daniel. Um, But I I have to say that the benefit and listening to you is so much worth all, any effort that I put in, and it's minor compared to what you did. Um, Paula indicated she had a couple questions about, um, uh, about, forages and then I have a couple questions and I know Sean Lee does. So we'll go um, with Paula's forage questions and then I'll offer the, the floor to Sean Lee and then pick one from one of my windows and then we'll get back to Paula cause I
6: suspect she has a ton.
0: So Thank go you. ahead Paula.
6: Yes, of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. The next question is from Jose. Um, when you do the the four layer in uh, in silage uh, with grass, what uh, what do you have to take care of uh, from one layer to the other? And how much time uh, do you spend between them?
1: Okay, yeah, good question. So to clarify, and maybe it's just a, uh, maybe we have the same understanding, but what that silage is, is first cutting on the bottom and fourth cutting on the top half. So those are two cuttings and we're on a 28 day cutting cycle on this farm. So therefore the uh, the time between the first cut being ensiled and the fourth cut being applied over that is uh, three times 28, uh, sorry, my math is weak tonight. It'd be around uh, 74 days, right? So, uh, during that 74 days that that first cut ferments, um, uh, both layers of plastic are put on over top and it's completely covered. It's not sealed perfectly around the edges. There's not a lot of tape being used. They don't put gravel along the outside edge, uh, but they remove, they roll that plastic up, both layers, the oxygen barrier layer, comes off in a roll with the, uh, the top layer of six mil conventional plastic. And then the, uh, the farmer puts that layer of fourth cut. Now, in some farms, we use a second cut or a third cut on top of the first cut. Um, and in other farms, we just put first cut primarily in one bunk, second, third, fourth, and fifth in each of their own bunks. It just depends on the farm and the bunker size and the number of head that they're feeding. Uh, but we on our, on our sort of what we call like small to moderate size Canadian dairies, um, we're not gonna have two bunks of haylage open for milk cows typically because we don't have enough cattle to feed that out. So the feed-out loss would be too great. So therefore it's better to, to layer it. Um, does that answer the question?
6: Yes, I, I think so. Okay, the next question. Uh, what is the main purpose of mixing grass and alfalfa in your silages
1: uh the mixture okay yeah uh awesome uh, it's i think cows first of all uh, cows like choice all right i think they're like children um in that they the, the more variety of forages we have i think is better i think that the uh a race to to single sources of forage. I think what will be lost in that um, is this uh, this enriched palatability that the multiple species can offer that cow. Okay, so that's number one. That's that's a human perception, by the way. Um, that's not the cow talking to me. That's just my perception. Okay. Uh, the other thing is that um, if we uh, grasses are very common here, uh, and it's because we're a cool season. Uh, forage production area on the east coast of Canada and my, many other parts of Canada as well. We do get some sharp high temperatures in midsummer in all parts most parts of Canada and that's when the alfalfa and the clover and the legumes really thrive. So we have to have a cool season grass planet so that we can get a really good first cut and a really good fourth or fifth cut late in the season and then those the alfalfa and clover, Uh, fill that void during the hot, uh, what I consider hot, uh, high humidity and the uh, the mid-summer. So the other thing is that we just, just essentially when we feed, when we mix alfalfa in with uh, grass and we have that free nitrogen, nitrogen fixation. So there's a lot of reasons for doing that. Okay. Um,
0: Thank you, I've got a couple questions, but first, um, Sean Lee, you, you wanted to talk a little bit about um, corn, I believe.
1: Uh, can I add one more thing I, to that? Yes. Lot? Uh, yeah, sorry, Sean, just to, to interrupt you before I forget it. Um, the, the other thing too, is that uh, because of the variable weather here in the East Coast, um, we may have a year when grass establishes really well, but alfalfa doesn't. And that's 2021. Uh, But if you look at 2020 or 2019, when we had some drier springs, the alfalfa established really well. So it's also a way to balance our risk if we blend those species together. Okay, go ahead, Sean. Hi, Daniel. That's great uh,
4: presentation. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, Yeah, um, well, after this talk, I have more things to discuss with you. Uh, about um, some broadcast this talk to the refugees used in China. Uh, but for now, I have one question about high moisture corn. Um, quite often, you know, in, in northern part of China, um, by the time you, you harvest the high moisture corn, the temperature get quite low. Uh, sometimes it's just blood below zero. So it's got, you know, the high moisture corn by the time you put it in the bunker, it's already frozen. Um, So the fermentation seems not uh, happening uh, during the winter until next spring and it's warm up. Maybe there's a bit of fermentation. I'm not sure, do we have similar situation in Canada and how how do the dairy farmers um, deal with that here?
1: Uh, yeah, Sean, uh, we do, uh, understand what, f- uh, freezing is and snow. <laughs> we understand very, yeah. very well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we already have to, I wore gloves all day today outside uh, when I was working. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Monty, I don't work hard, so I have to wear gloves. I have to keep warm. So there's, um, So I I would say in in this area, on the East Coast, a lot of the corn silage is harvested in late September or early October. Uh, This year, in particular, the weather was around 15 to 25 Celsius during harvest. So that's a very good temperature for harvest of corn silage. However, there's other parts of Canada, for example, example, as you are well aware, Sean, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and and, uh, Alberta, where it could be. Uh, they may have to wait for a freeze uh, for that corn silage to actually uh, dry down, so. Uh, but
4: the high moisture corn, I'm worried about the high moisture corn, like snapping. Oh, okay. okay, yeah. Because you you, you you harvest harvest that later, like one or two or three weeks after the corn silage, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, so it, uh, that's a good question. Sorry, to, I'm glad you clarified. Uh, the. The high moisture corn, um, you're right. It is actually harvested often times during cold weather here in Canada as well. So, because sometimes we have to wait until uh, late October or even November or December for it to, for not only the crop to get dry enough, but sometimes in order to get back on the field, we have to wait for a freeze up. We have to wait for that soil to freeze so the tractors don't sink in the mud, right? Um, so yeah. it is common. Uh, yeah. So I've seen many, many times where high moisture corn actually doesn't start fermenting until this, until feed out, uh, where it just goes in frozen and it stays, uh, cold for the entire feed out, uh, sorry for the entire, uh, uh winter. And then in the spring yeah. and summer when we're feeding it, it actually, it's very risky. It's not ideal. Yeah. It can go through that sec- that fermentation, that feed out. So, <laughs> So
4: basically, we just
1: um, just
4: uh, go with that, um, put it in the bunker and start using that, maybe immediately because it's frozen anyway. Yeah. But once the weather warm up, like, as you said, it's, it's quite dangerous, right? The the mold and.
1: Uh... Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it comes with a lot of risks. Um, now, if you know if. I, I don't know the situation of the region of China that you're, my, that you're talking about. I, I'm not sure about that, uh, the situation there with the, the weather. However, um, if we find that, I, I would say just a general point is if, if, we're feed, if we're growing a corn that is coming off during freezing weather, then we may want to look for a shorter season corn or a shorter season cereal grain to produce in that area to optimize the, the regional conditions as opposed to, uh, to mm-hmm. trying to make it work.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, another thing, just a comment about the clostrum. Yeah, it's it, it's quite complicated. Uh, we we had some nutritionists ask the same question. They don't know why, uh, especially in the winter. It seems, um, the some cows couldn't get enough clostrum. Um. Anyway, so, but uh, last, uh, last week I, I, I heard a, a webinar discussing about uh, um, high calcium plus the um, DECAD diet. Uh, it seems to, you know, help the cows to produce more Um It's quite new research. I have not uh, told any nutrition our nutritionist in China about this. But maybe it's worthwhile, like trying that, you know, like, using decaf diet, but to give one point five percent calcium, it may. Okay. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Okay. It's good point.
4: Research shows that. Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, so this particular farm. Um, okay. That's a, yeah. Thank you. That's a that's a good point. I, I would love to to look at that research. Um, in this particular case, it's a it is a decaf diet. Uh, we use animate and uh, the calcium is uh, above 1.5%. Um, so it's, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, we are a challenge. We, we don't know why this is happening. And it's not the only farm. We, we see low per- colostrum production on, on many of our uh, clients' farms, typically related to straw feeding, but not always, sometimes not related.
4: Mm-hmm. So Yeah, it's quite complicated. Anyway, thank you so much. Yeah.
1: It is complicated. Uh, I haven't heard any good uh,
0: science on it yet, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had I had heard something similar, but I don't I don't recall whether there was a solution or what was done. I think it was on a local farm here. Mm -hmm. Um, Sean, thank you for those those excellent Mm -hmm. questions. Um, While we're discussing forages, I have a couple here um, regarding snaplage or or shredlage. Um, So First of all this is from Dean Fry and he says it's a great overview and some good points of what to look at when reviewing diets from what the animal is telling us. Um, Daniel could a shredless processor smash the snaplage grain more. Um, as as Dean understands the processor is heavy duty and can de- can it do more in processing. Do you what's your experience there?
1: Yeah, yeah, good point. Good point, Dean. Thanks for joining tonight. By the way, it's uh, in this case actually it is a, a, a shredded processor on that farm, okay? And I I do find that it's actually being uh, what relatively well processed on that farm. I think the the farms where we don't see the good processing, we find that the greatest uh, variable is whether or not they're using recutter screen. And now I'm I don't operate a, a harvester. I I I I, and I don't fill it up with fuel, but one thing I know for sure is that every time I mention the word a recutter screen uh, to a client, um, they're uh, the first thing they say is it takes a lot of time and a lot of horsepower uh, to run it through a recutter screen. Uh, But however, I think it's still cheaper to run it through a recutter screen early uh, at the beginning of the process rather than, uh, than look at it in the manure for 12 months after,
0: so. Okay, Um, and following up from Dean is, you also raised the point that you're wanting longer in the pit for snaplage, more than two months. Um, And he just comments, he expects the same applies, maybe even more so that the data shows that after three to six months on corn silage in the pit, we see the starch molecules become more available, which when getting, to black layer means the protein starch matrix is very tight. So he would expect that snaplage would be more, much the same, actually even greater, thus wanting probably over six months minimum. Do you have any comments on this? And I think you can see that question too. Yeah. (laughs) To suss it out.
1: Yeah, it's, um, you know, as a nutritionist, I I have to, uh, and Dean, you can relate to this too. it's it's always a, a compromise um you have to we have to i, I try to recognize okay uh, corn is 350 dollars canadian a ton right now for shell corn and however they they have the greatest snapper harvest uh, ever here in Nova Scotia this year as far as uh, volume per acre goes uh so it's it i guess as a as a coach to these farmers so the question is like how do you um you know, yeah, we want to we be uh, sensitive to to what they need to do to make uh, ends meet the best way possible. And I would love to see Snapplage sit in a bunk for six months and they don't open it until March break. That would be awesome. Um, in reality, uh, most of them put it in on day one this year. Actually, they are putting it in. On day zero, because they would the first load of snappage they harvested this year, and high moisture corn was was more or less going into the TMR wagon that same day, uh, just to get rid of that. At, and that was because we were feeding uh, uh, at that time four hundred and fifty dollar a ton ground corn. So it was a I think it was a race to see who could get uh, their own high moisture corn into the mixture the fastest this year. So, but I agree. Uh, you know your your comments regarding the, The uh, digestibility. I I would totally agree that they're very valid. Uh, The longer you wait, the better, and that's why we always see, probably, likely, the highest production that we see uh, in most of Canada and the U.S. is after that snap or high moisture corn has been sitting for six months, and then we start start to see uh, maybe issues with even too much digestibility after 12 or 14 months of fermentation. So.
0: Yeah, Dean agrees. He says he has farms that feed the maize silage as soon as it goes into the pits. Price rules.
1: Okay, so I'm glad uh, I'm I'm not alone. Not surprised.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, While we're on this topic, and then we'll switch back over to Paula's questions. Um, Processing, and this is sort of a comment, but it made me chuckle. Processing can come back to um, chopper driving speed. Young guys like to go fast. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's It's
1: right. a, a happy medium, Tim. I mean, it's uh, you know, like, like we have a self-propelled chopper on our family farm, and uh, we have we're lucky. We have a very good operator, and he's he's uh, constantly tweaking the uh, the uh, the speed of the harvester and stuff like that. But I think uh, number one, if we go too slow, we don't have enough bulk material going through that that uh, the recutter and the um, the processor. So now. Uh, Now, if you go too fast and it it really challenges that roller, then we tend to get too much coming through. So it's a happy medium really. Uh, There's that too slow and there's too fast. It's right in the middle when the ideal amount of materials come through that uh, harvester. I think everybody can relate to a crop of alfalfa grass that's very young cut, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, thin, thin, a very thin crop of second or third or fourth cut grass um and the rows the windrows are, are small uh, that stuff comes out with a lot of long material and the same applies to corn silage or high moisture corn processing there's that half a happy medium
3: mm-hmm.
0: okay um paula would you like to oh and, and we'll come back to questions in the in the chat window but paula would you like to um start letting loose with some of yours
6: yes uh, I, I have a question uh, regarding uh, hollow eyes in fresh cows. Is it associated with ketosis?
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's okay. Uh, this is anecdotal, okay? This is uh, the experience that I personally have uh, because I, I don't know um, how many other people uh, or if research can, can back this up a hundred percent, but one thing we know for sure is that when cows are losing weight or they're dehydrated, uh, their eyes sink into their head. Okay. Now it takes a really a really close observing to to pick up on that. Okay. We can walk through a barn uh, with some herds people and they don't see that. All right. They don't see that sunken eye. We can walk through the barn with other people and they're they're noticing it uh, everywhere. All right. I particularly pay attention to it. I just it's something that I I I grew up my dad uh, always had me watching the eyes of cows. So I see it really uh, the first thing I, I look at actually is the eyes on cows when I go into the barn. So is it related to ketosis? Indirectly, yes. I mean, ketosis is obviously a, a disease uh, that's brought about by low dry matter intake, and it's obviously related to uh, to body fat loss um, and, uh, and fatty liver disease. So uh, do we see it in ketosis cows? Yeah, generally you see it in ketosis cows uh, all the time.
6: Okay, perfect. Thank you. Uh, Marian. I have two more questions. Do you want me okay. to go yeah, on? Yeah, do
0: you want to keep going and then I'll come back to the ones in my window? Okay, perfect.
6: Uh, the next question is, do you monitor uh, NUS, uh, sorry, uh, nitrogen in M- blood, M- MUN, or uh, uh, blood uh, UN, uh, to evaluate the diet?
1: Uh, yeah, the answer is yes. Um, uh, sorry, not in the blood. We don't, we don't evaluate BUN. Uh, we, we watch MUN. Uh, so depending on the region of Canada uh, that we're talking about, uh, some of the areas have it on every bulk tank shipment, and other areas have it just on... Uh, on a voluntary basis, uh, so we try to get most of our clients to to have uh, MUN, and then we uh, and the the what we do with that information is we use it as just one more tool to tweak the uh, the protein nutrition. So we will use it to uh, to typically, along with watching the rumen ammonia on the ration, um, we like to have that rumen ammonia somewhere between 125 and 150. Percentage of requirement. When it gets below 125, we usually add urea or some other source of degradable protein to try to drive it up a little bit more. And we watch the MUN while we're doing that. So, um, the other thing too, I've been uh, I actually been watching MUN quite a bit over the past uh, decade or, or even further back just because it's interesting. That it's just one more tool we can use to tweak that protein. But if a herd, I've seen many high production herds uh, in the five to six range. Uh, I've seen many herds in the 40 to 42 kg of production uh, on a good Holstein herd, uh, where they're five, six for a prolonged amount of time um, with no noticeable signs of problems, health problems, or uh, or production problems. Uh, But I've also uh, seen, I've also observed herds uh, that were uh, 12 to 15. On a regular basis and every time we make attempts spend money to reduce that mun in other words we switch up degradable source of protein for for higher bypass or uh, feed more heat-treated soy and less canola or something like that it never pays off so i i think that we have to be aware if it's too high we do absolutely have to make changes to the diet Uh, but it's not always a protein it's typically the carbohydrate load to the nfc so we usually drive the uh, starch or sugar. Um, generally, uh, we drive the starch and sugar uh, to what is a healthy level, but an optimal level. We, we think that the, the, the cheapest sources of nutrients for that cow is NFC. Uh, that's what's going to give us the most production of mi- microbial protein and the most uh, metabolizable energy at the end of the day. So we want to drive starch and sugar and NFC as high as we can while keeping that cow healthy. So.
6: Okay, great. Thank you. And uh, the last question, which is your, your decision with the cows with low production in the fourth week of the lactation? And which is the limit of milk yield in that week?
1: Yeah, uh, Paula, can you, Sorry, can you ask that question one more time? I just want to make sure I understand it correctly.
6: Yes, of course. Uh, What is is your decision with the cows with very low milk yield at the fourth week of lactation? Uh, And which is the limit uh, in milk production?
1: Okay. All right. So it's a question around what do we do with that cow? How do we manage her? Do we call her or not? Is that the question? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, do we, and do we have a, a break even like a sort of like, like you're out of here uh, if it's yes. been okay. Um, I think that, yeah. So in this particular farm, they, um, they do a really good job of, of getting cows successfully through that transition period. All right. Very small part of that is the nutritionist myself, a very large part of that, are the uh, the team of advisors they use and just the work and the effort of that, of the herds person, the owner and all the staff there. Uh, There's so many things being done right on that farm that we don't happen to see a lot of low W4MK productions. Okay, Now, um, I I can't really answer that question. What is a cutoff or what do they do with it? I think that um, we use that as a tool though to troubleshoot if it does come up on a common basis, uh, so every time I visit the, the graph, the first graph I open on Dairy Comp 305 is the, uh, the, uh, the the graph that shows the uh, W4Mk uh, by day of calving. So it's a graph of the last three years of every cow that calved, and we can see the trend of the W4Mk on fresh calves. That's the first thing I look at, and if I see something that's low. Uh, then it's brought to uh, the attention of, uh, of the staff or the owner, and then we discuss it. and We try to troubleshoot it along with the veterinarian staff too. Uh, so we have a lot of we have a really good team on that farm. Uh, they are they're always really good at giving input, and uh, but the the owner really allows that that good input too. He's always asking questions. He's super open minded. Uh, he's just a really good manager. Uh, so. Uh, I don't know the cutoff, though. I don't know what he would consider calling. Um, we're in a supply-managed system, so the calling, uh, we, we do have to do a lot of uh, voluntary calling on well-managed farms, uh, just because we can't overproduce uh, for a long period of time. We have to keep our production very tight in Canada uh, because of the quota. so.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Paula, for some really great questions. We're going to go to a question that I had to scold Daniel not to answer, and he was just tricking me earlier. This is a question from Pat Guerin. Can you comment on the main reasons that a lot of dairies in Southeast Asia um, catchments such as Vietnam are using cereal straw in dry and close-up diets rather than, the, um, than chase higher dry matter intake with higher digestible grass hay?
1: Yeah. Good question. Um, yeah, I got scolded on that. for <laughs> This morning, actually I got scolded for, uh, for answering a question. I'm so used to, uh, to, to facilitating these webinars uh, on my own where I, I just like to answer questions automatically, but uh, I had my wrist slapped from afar. Um, now, uh, the, the, uh, to to answer the question, and the other thing I got scolded on was a playlist, the music playlist. All right, so I thought it was pretty good. Okay, I thought it was <laughs> sort of pumped me up. But anyways, uh, not everybody likes a Western rap. So, <laughs>
4: um,
1: n- now to answer that question, though, the uh, what I think what you're implying is is that it's your 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 question, Pat, is um, really why why are we feeding straw? Which leads to a low low energy intake uh, when we could be feeding a lot of energy to a pretty fresh cow. okay? Now, this goes back to the concept of, uh, of Jim Drakeley's uh, uh, controlled energy diet program, um, which has been uh, fostered by Gordy Jones over the years and's been highly advocated by by uh, Dr. Jones. And there's been a lot of research papers over the last twenty years. Uh, that show a a link between a high energy pre-fresh diet uh, and calving related diseases or fresh cow transition related diseases. And what their research has found is that when we feed a controlled energy diet, and I don't mean low, I mean controlled. And what that means is that perfect amount of calories rather than feeding a heavy steam up diet, which is still quite common, uh, but... We, the, their research has found and myself too, and I think other uh, professionals in this region have also found that when we control the energy intake of these pre-fresh cows, we're going to have a higher success rate in preventing uh, ketosis, uh, fatty liver, um, uh, and anything related to those two diseases, uh, even calving dystochia, uh, Dystocia, sorry. And the uh, the other thing too is that if we feed a controlled energy diet to the pre fresh cows, uh, that's going to improve the insulin status, the insulin, um, uh, uh, the ability for the, those cows to absorb that energy efficiently once they do calve and go on to a moderate energy fresh cow diet. Okay. So we've had better luck with controlled energy than a, than a high horsepower steam up diet that we used to feed. 10 to 25 years ago okay now it's not saying that a good good classic close-up diet doesn't work i think what's got to be realized is that every farm is unique all right in southeast asia where straw um, is probably maybe a cheaper source of uh, fiber or ndf than uh than grass hay okay i've been to, to many regions of asia and i know that uh it's a lot cheaper to buy uh Uh, wheat straw from Australia uh, or uh, uh, rice straw that's properly uh, produced in that region, Um, not the stuff that you see sitting out on the roadside in Vietnam where there's cars driving over it and the rain gets it. I mean like properly uh, produced uh, rice straw. Uh, I think those are really good in the region and I think that uh, that's very, very important in dairy production, especially with tight margins, to optimize what we feed that we can produce or buy regionally cheap as possible, so.
0: Perfect, thank you. Yeah, it's fun scolding you, Daniel, you take it so well. <laughs> You're just so eager to answer those questions. Um, so uh, here's a question from Hugo. Would you prefer soy pass in pre diet and soy plus in the fresh pen? Or why do you prefer? Yeah,
1: oh, okay, yeah, I think uh, that was very, you caught that Hugo, it was, that was very, very astute of you to catch that. Um, and that's because I didn't update one of those diets with the current, uh, bypass soy product. Um, so you, you, you did catch me, uh, with a ration error there. Uh, I think in the case of this farm, we've been, we've tried amino plus soy pass and uh, soy plus. Okay. And we can balance CMP adequately with all three sources. Um, but uh, like any uh, dairy farmer or nutritionist, uh, we like to go with what's going to give the best value at the time. And it just happened to be soy plus at the current time. So I don't have a preference. No.
0: Okay. Um, from Eric DeVries, what level of negative DCAT are you balancing for? And are you moder- monitoring the urine pH closely?
1: Uh, on this particular farm, okay, we, we, uh, uh now, I should start I should sit, start by saying um, I, I don't think there's a, a perfect dry cow program, okay? I have very good luck with uh, calcium binders. I have very good luck with a well-managed decad diet. Uh, I have no personal preference, okay? Um, I think what matters is what that producer can manage, all right? this is. right? I'm just opening this question up with a general statement, okay? Okay. Um, I, I love a well-managed anion diet, okay? Because it means that they're really paying attention to everything, okay? Um, now in this case here, we're, uh, the decad one is negative 174, 174. And uh, the, uh, the amount of uh, that particular decad product that we're feeding on this farm uh, currently is Animate, which we've had very good luck with. Uh, and it's only in there 0. 0.65 kilograms per cow per day. And we do have a little bit of extra sulfates coming in uh, to the premix in the form of calcium and magnesium sulfates. Uh, but most of the, the anions are being supplemented from greater than 50% of the anions in that diet are being supplemented from animate. Uh, this farm happens to do a urinary pH on the close up pen uh, uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, so I believe it's every Wednesday. And they usually, uh, as a matter of fact, this week they're seeing all cows between 5.0 and 6.0. Uh, so they're leaving it alone. But they take it upon themselves to tweak that DCAD uh, uh, level, sorry, the DCAD in the diet by adjusting that uh, animates up or down by 50 grams per cow per day on a weekly basis. So they pay attention to it themselves. Then when I go and reformulate the close up diet, I text them and I ask, what is your current level? of uh, animate so that I can make sure I reformulate the minerals properly against that amount of animate that's already uh, being fed. So I hope that answers your question.
0: Okay, Thank you. Um, And then, excuse me, I'm down to my last question. If no one adds any to um, the chat or the Q&A or if Paula or Sean or Marcos has nothing. So, ta-da um this is a water intake question how often do you advise farmers to clean and empty the water troughs is there data to show a greater intake of water the cleaner the trough is
1: yeah that's a yeah you know water is the biggest nutrient a cow consumes but it's only a little tiny chapter in the new nrc book right and uh, i made the same comment at a a presentation i did yesterday It's, it's a, it's the most important nutrient, uh, but we are not doing enough research on water and the, uh, the NRC fails to, uh, uh, I mean, they publish only based on trials that they can access. So it's the committee obviously cannot publish a lot if there's no trials being done, but unfortunately, uh, there's not enough being done. I advocate for 10 centimeters of water bowl space per cow. Um, I advocate for proper placement, meaning that uh, in a cross alley where most water bowls find themselves in, in Canadian dairy farms, uh, that we have enough width of that cross alley so the cows are not interrupted when other cows walk in behind uh, the cattle that are consuming. Uh, the other thing that we that's very important to do is to place out water bowls so that several cows can sit uh, in a domino type position. Sorry, not not sit. Cows don't sit. Cows stand so they can stand in a row and, and adequately consume that water. Um, the, the cleaning of water bowls, I think it matters on uh, uh, what I find is the closer the water bowl is to the feed bunk, it means it's going to, going to need clean more often. Uh, I also find that if water bowl space is limited, it's going to need clean more often. Um, really the right answer is daily, um, but I'm, uh, I'm also advocating that they should open their snappage six months later okay so it's easy for me to make these recommendations uh but it's another thing to ask the customers or clients to go spend that extra 30 minutes a day of labor um all what i do as a coach is i try to say hey here's what i've seen on other farms work well um here's what i want you to consider okay as opposed to what you're doing now so i give them that option and they they make uh, the decision themselves. They're all big girls and big boys and they know uh, what uh, is gonna give them the, man- the best uh, bang for the buck as far as labor goes, so.
0: Okay, um, thank you, Daniel. And and I think um, when Rick Grant did the tour through Minor, we tackled a little bit on the, he talked a little bit about the importance of making sure there's good placement of water troughs and that it's clean. Um, And also, Lynn did a fantastic um, little what do you want to know Wednesday last was it last summer or the summer? Well, the summer 2020 when we were everybody was stuck in one place and we were we were doing extra videos during the week. Um, So and she she talked about the importance of clean water. So a little shout out to my colleague Lynn. If we don't have any other questions, and I think Paul is done, um, Daniel, this has been so much fun. Oh, Marcos, do you have a question?
5: (laughs) Yes, I I have one. (laughs) Yes, good. Thank you, too. Uh, I found it really nice that you're looking at the rumen-nitrogen balance. I don't think a lot of people have been paying attention to that. And have you have you seen a relationship between what you get as a number in AMTS? Like if you go up and down and to mu ends in, in the bulk tank, like when you go down, the mu ends go down, you really good, see a good relationship. And what would be low and high mu ends for you? Like when you worry, when, uh, what you shoot for?
1: Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, good question. Um, I love these technical questions because I am a geek. I love the computer and the formulator. So um, I'm not happy with the MUN predictions, and I'm not sure if, uh, if, I am, if I'm being too honest here, Marianne. Um, no, that's good.
0: We like, we like feedback.
1: Okay. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I'm not happy with the, uh, with the model. Uh, that means that, um, that I may not be modeling as well as I could be, okay? So maybe I'm missing something on my forage analysis. Maybe I'm not entering things right. Maybe I'm not describing my cattle good enough, but I see a very weak relation uh, at this point between the MUN uh, on the computer and the MUN in the bulk tank, okay? So I'll say that much. Uh, so what I do is I pay attention to the uh, MUN and the bulk tank, and I know there is some other nutritionist friends I have that watch the MUN on the uh, AMTS, on the software, and they adjust their diets accordingly uh, based on the MUN. I watch room pneumonia, I watch MP, I watch uh, digestible amino acids. Uh, those are the three things that I really pay attention to. I do look at CP uh, on some farms, uh, but mainly MP. And, uh, but if the, if the MUN gets above, Uh, 12 or 13 then we uh, try to give that diet attention Uh, so we would add more NFC maybe some lower degradable protein Um, now I've gotten caught in that MUN race before where I do everything I can to reduce that MUN Uh, but sometimes that just you lose too much milk when you're chasing MUNs uh, because you end up lowering the MP too much or the degradable protein too much. And then you end up starving a cow. Uh, so she actually goes down in production. So it's, uh, I, like, I, I like to see it between eight, 10 in a perfect world. But I'm fine if it's five or six or seven because I've seen great, great production from herds when it's that low as well. So it's All just. Right. Lynn,
0: uh, the, Lynn is going to pop in and um, give you a little bit of insight on what those MUN numbers in the program actually
3: are are
0: meant to do for you.
3: Mm. Hi Daniel, thanks for uh, your presentation. It's pretty great, like usual. <laughs> so um, the MUNs in the program uh, for precision feeding, I did some work a long time ago on precision feeding and we came up with the numbers eight to 12. And in the program, um, so it's the MUNs are gonna be used, you know, coming out of the CNCPS but it seems as though they're directional depending on your processor as well because the processor may be taking MUNs, you know, at different points than what, you know, they are when they first come out of the cow or whatever and um, so it seems like they're directional and that's, I don't, that just seems to be how it is, if that makes sense.
1: Okay, um, so it's, yeah, so it's, uh, you're basically saying that I, I got to pay more attention to this, right, Lynn?
3: <laughs> yeah, you might too. <laughs> uh,
4: yeah.
5: Okay, i okay. ask a, the last one, Daniel. Uh, I was curious about the, you're using the fresh cow diet for the pre-fresh, pre-fresh heifers. So you're feeding anionic salts for the mature cows only, right? When you feed this fresh cow diet to the pre-fresh heifers, what about the minerals? You're not feeding any cations in the diet, like no sodium bicarb, or how, how you deal with calcium and potassium, basically? How, mm. how are you dealing with that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think we get to realize, recognize that a springing heifer is much different than a mature dry cow. Okay, they have, uh, they're, they're much different animals. Uh, so number one, um, I think a lot of our uh, dry cow uh, nutrition programs are designed for that mature cow, that mature dry cow. Now, in this case here, we, we went into this trial, realizing that there may be risks here, it's not a perfect diet, uh, we, we recognize it's, it's not a perfect diet. So that was a reason why we wanted to go into it with an open mind. Um, we it's not a farm that's big enough to have its own pre-fresh heifer diet so we have no choice we have to feed you the close-up mature cow diet uh but we thought in this case why don't we try the fresh cow diet because it's moderate fiber moderate energy um actually very high in metabolism protein um and uh and we had pretty good results okay um is it better than than what it was before this? Uh, just a little bit, okay. But it is. Uh, it serves the purpose of having one less diet change for those prepartum heifers. Um, it doesn't. It does have a lot of cations, and we honestly have not tested uh, blood calciums in these fresh heifers, so I can't even answer if it's actually compromising uh, the blood calcium status or not. Um, my gut feeling is that they, it's not affecting it. Okay. Um, now there's also a, uh, uh, but the main thing is we're trying to reduce stress. Okay. I think that it's more important to reduce stress and keep cows happy and, and, uh, and eating than it is to, to, to worry about tweaking the diet uh, to, to perfect mineral levels. In this case, I think it's, uh, it's been well-proven Uh, We did see a little bit more outer swelling from time to time, but it's still uh, within reason. So.
3: Okay. So,
5: so Daniel, just to make clear, so are you using sodium bicarb in the lactating herd or you don't?
1: Yeah, we do, yes. You do? Yeah, we use uh, uh, 0.075%. So a 30 kilogram intake is uh, consuming uh, 225 grams of sodium bicarbonate.
5: So the heifers are getting the same thing, basically? Yeah. In like the yeah. placentas are all fine.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. we're not getting any retained placentas in the heifers. Uh, you gotta remember though, these heifers are calving, they're probably only consuming 10 kilograms of dry matter intake for the first few days. 10 kilograms is only 75 grams of sodium bicarbonate. Uh, when they get to 15 or 20 kilograms of dry matter intake, which is probably if uh, two or three weeks into lactation, then they're going to be consuming uh, more like uh, 150 grams, so they're still not consuming much sodium bicarbonate.
5: Okay, thank you. That's interesting. Thanks a lot for the presentation. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you.
0: Thank you for your question, Marcos. Um, the, just a comment from Tim. He agrees the bulk tank best. The bulk tank is best for MUN. They fluctuate all over. The place uh, a day in the spring pasture is eighteen is a good mun so I think um, probably probably that's you know you look for trends and and apply what's going on at the time
1: yeah it's yeah it's a very good point Tim yeah and uh, little shout out uh, there's uh, quite a few people on the webinar tonight from the UK so I realize it's uh, past your bedtime over there so thanks for uh, for spending your time with us tonight.
0: Yes, I'm always appreciative of the people that are joining us from all over the place and astounded that they stay up for this or get up really early. Um, but Daniel, um, this has been fantastic. I think that, uh, let's see, question. Do you start seeing better first milk colostrum and in the first calf heifers on the heifer pre-fresh diet?
1: Uh I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. Um, Maybe, a. a yeah, okay. Uh, Thank you everybody for the questions you asked. This has been fantastic. Um, Daniel, thank you for, I know that you're quite busy this fall and you thought it would be less busy by putting it off a month and- um,
4: (laughs) Oh
1: yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, busy is (laughs) fine. Busy is okay as long as you're having fun, right? So
0: yeah, you know,
1: yeah, we are, we're having
0: fun. And um, it was beautiful the day you did the filming, so we were glad that that was. You know, we wouldn't have mind seeing snow either, but it was really lovely. Um, we really everybody I think appreciated this. The recording will go up in probably a week or more. Um, and thank you all for attending. Thank you. Paula, Marcos, um, Sean—if Sean's still here—and Paul, Paula, Paula, Sean—and and thank you, Lynn, for joining and and helping us out here. So, all right.
4: Thank you, thank you, Daniel. Thank you. you uh, have a great day,
3: everybody. Have a good evening. Thank you. Yep.
0: Good night, everybody, Goodbye. or good day. Goodbye. Bye.